Torrent Borealis Paradigm Expansion Greetings from the North to the citizens of the world, welcome to the Forum and the first episode in our new series called The Crisis of Academia. To kick this off, as our first guest, I chose someone whom I often listen to. This program is the gold standard. I'm talking about Skeptico, Science at the Tipping Point, a show that will appeal to almost all the listeners of the forum. So uh, our guest tonight is producer and host of Skeptico, Alex Tsakiris, an entrepreneur and science philanthropist originally from Chicago. He got his MBA from Western Illinois University, spent several years as a Price Waterhouse consultant and also took a research associate position at the University of Arizona in pursuit of his PhD in artificial intelligence. He eventually left academia in order to found MindPath Technologies, a successful IT firm And he is also a member of Texas Instruments Artificial Intelligence Laboratory. Chakiris has appeared on many podcasts, syndicated radio talk shows, both in the US and UK. And in 2007, he started the Skeptical Podcast that is famous for profound discussions with cutting-edge scientists with emphasis on frontier science. Needless to say, it draws the wrath of our modern-day inquisitors, namely the pseudo-skeptical New Atheist community. Such an independent and original attitude makes him a perfect guest, and since he is out with a new book called Why Science is Wrong, we will start our new system-critical series, by exploring these matters with Alex, especially the corruption of science, gatekeepers and controllers, and of course materialist fundamentalists who make so much noise online, a much more hidden danger to genuine science than corporate and intel control. Since this was set out as an amicable conversation, expect me to opinionate and rant as well as my guests. So without further ado, sit back and enjoy the first official Skeptico Borealis chat. Kalimera and welcome to Forum Borealis, Alex. Thank you, Al. It's great to be here. I'm so pleased to have you on. You know, I've been listening to you for some time. And uh, when I saw you had this book out, uh-huh. this book with, uh, you love this title, folks. It's called uh, Why Science is Wrong About Almost Everything. Then um, I had the perfect excuse to get you on the show. <laughs> I've had, because I, I don't always like when podcasters, uh, radio people interview each other. Sometimes it works if they have something to say, but, um, right. And you do, but here we have the perfect thing because you have this great show that I hope all my listeners will check out called Skeptical. And now you have this book. Uh, I was impressed by the book. I'm impressed by your show. 
And it's perfect because this program we're recording now with you will be a part of a series called The Crisis of Academia. And the whole subject matter of that series is precisely what your skeptical shows are about. Mm. Well, you actually also explore uh, some other things, but I'm thinking this critical light towards pseudo-skepticism, new atheism, uh, this corruption, basically, of science. Right, right. Well, you know, we were chatting a little bit before the interview about how brothers from a different mother kind of thing, (laughs) because when I was introduced to Forum Borealis, I was like, wow, you know, this is, and and I I have to tell you, there's another side to kind of interviewing podcasters. And I know what you mean. They can get kind of clicky where everyone's interviewing each other for their show and nothing's really getting said. But the flip side of that is I've come to believe that podcasters are occupying a special place in this uh, public dialogue we're having. I mean, you are synthesizing information from all these different people that you talk to in a way that a researcher or a scholar isn't able to do because Mm. you have to be on your toes. You know, like I was telling you, I thought you did a great job with Peter Lavenda, among others. But, you Mm. know, Peter Lavenda is a really smart guy. Yeah, you're referring to the alchemy uh, program. And you did another one with him, two or three with him, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and so that takes a lot of work to prepare yourself for that interview because he's a smart guy. He's written a lot of really uh, deep books. So my, my point really is just that that process brings you into that orbit of that knowledge. And then you're, next week you're merging it with somebody else. And that's just kind of a cool thing. So and I. I say that because I hope we can have that kind of dialogue here. I love the interaction you have with your guests and, you know, ask me anything, challenge me anything. I like (laughs) to ask some challenging questions sometimes on my show because that's what I like to listen to. I don't like to listen to people just reading off of these kind of standard. No, but I have to say, uh, actually, that's so I said you have kind of two types of guests. Maybe to dumb it down, we could call them friendlies and hostiles. Mm -hmm. But of course, it's very cordial. You're a a gentleman, often more than some of them deserve. But (laughs) I say that your most interesting shows are with the friendlies and your most entertaining shows are with the hostiles. And Mm. to the folks who have no clue what we're talking about... Alex interviews uh, uh, thinkers. Uh, he explores consciousness. You explore the realm of, of uh, you know, the metaphysical, yes. the afterlife in a very scientific and academic approach, more so than we've done f- so far. We, we've mostly done it, the few shows we've had on that have been more more uh, esoteric approach. But And then you have also on uh, these uh, pseudo-skeptics, basically, these uh, debunkers, new atheists. And, and that's so funny because they are they're not very good thinkers. Uh, in fact, I'd say, Alex, and... Uh, I'd like to hear your thoughts about that. I, I say that, like Kennedy said, Kennedy actually said that the cynics and the skeptics, their horizons are limited by the obvious reality. <laughs> and that's such a great way to put it, because they're not capable, it seems, of abstract thought. There's no metaphor in their thinking. I, When you go down that path too far, it turns people off because they, they just are so conditioned to think, you know, you're starting another kind of... Uh, polarizing debate where it's us us against them. But I tell you, I can relate to what you're saying on just a level of just that's just the way that it is. Mm. I mean, what's what I always found 
funny is that I went into Skeptico thinking that there was going to be this real debate and not knowing which side I would wind up on because we're all conditioned to believe that this new atheist idea, which is really scientific materialism, which is really just the cornerstone of science as we know it. Mm. My kids are in school, in, in high school here in the United States, and one's in college, and they come back. Their science work is that. It is materialism. It's you are your brain and nothing else. Uh, there is no such thing as consciousness. Consciousness is an illusion. Now, they don't say it quite like that, but they say that the, the brain generates consciousness, which is really saying the same thing. And that's what, so yeah. the, the, the point being that what, what strikes me after being at it for a while is that the position these people are taking is really just, it, it's fundamentalism and it's much more close to fundamental Christianity or fundamental exactly. Judaism or is it's, it's the same. It's like, this is my dogma. This is my doctrine. Don't take me off of it. Or I kind of don't know what to do. Yeah, exactly. You're touching now, you're actually hands-on the subject matter here. And I'll say that your shows do require certain intellectual capability. So uh, when I, I'm all over the place, right? I, I have many subject matters that we explore. And that means I get all sorts of people. It's, you know, all that in one bag. And yeah. I've been wondering, where are the pseudoskeptics? They, they probably haven't discovered me yet, but they will uh -huh. definitely start trolling our channel now after you have been on. Well, you know what, Al? What I've noticed is that, that there's a change in strategy among the pseudoskeptics. And the mm -hmm. strategy shift has been from confrontation, trolling, fight back, to the strategy mm -hmm. of uh, non-acknowledgement, just oh, completely great. bypass. Well, it is great, but it's also, it's the same strategy that Scientology has followed, if you, if you really want yeah. to get into it. Because if you yeah. remember a few years ago, Scientology was out there, I'm going to sue you if you say anything. Yeah. But now what do they do? They don't say anything. They don't say anything. They don't want to draw any attention to that. And they just want to get their own message out. So in one sense, you can say, gee, that's great that they're not in my face. But in another sense... What I believe is there's some kind of agenda and some kind of following uh, someone else's plan, talking points of this is how we do it, guys, whether it's complete. Oh, definitely. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I can tell you already because I know some of these people. First of all, they are organizing. They're very smart. Let's say you are 10 persons of 100, right? Mm -hmm. If those 90 person are disorganized and those 10 person are organized, they can attack person after person or group of person after group of person and win every time and eventually look like they're the majority because they're organized. It's a, actually, this is a conspiracy in the real sense of the world. Absolutely. <laughs> they are infiltrating. They are controlling like Wikipedia they took over long ago, exactly. as you probably know. Exactly. So, but uh, I think it's good that they do the Scientology strategy because Scientology is crumbling and uh, uh, when they're not distracting us, we can spend our energy getting our message out and then we increase. And I guess that's why uh, the, the I numbers... I agree with you. I agree with you on both counts. I think the first mm. point is, is an excellent point. I mean, it's like a, a straight out of... Uh, uh, Sun Tzu, art of war kind of thing, you know, I mean, if you organize your troops in a certain way. But the second point I think is is also, I would totally agree with Al, and that's that this is a loser decline strategy. It's a, it's a retreating strategy to say, okay, don't engage, 
don't engage, just try and do our best to get our message out. And I think both in the case of Scientology and the pseudo-skeptics, they're backpedaling. You know, they're not advancing, mm. and that's just a retreat strategy. Don't draw any attention to how bad they're beating us. No, and, and then uh, that's how uh, then we can discuss with the more serious representatives of that paradigm, you know. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Mm. I think part of the the problem and at the same time the opportunity, even though that sounds totally cliche, is that like in my area, five years ago, everyone was talking about skeptics. When you talk about near-death experience or medium communication or any or psi, you know, all this stuff that we talk about, it was always skeptics versus skeptics. And yeah. what people have realized over the years, and I realized too, is that that's not, that's in, that's where they want you to go. What it's really about is science versus all these exactly. things. Exactly. Exactly. Right? So I think you're in the same ballpark when you talk about in the- 100%. Yeah. In the, in the alternate political or the alternate anything. It's like they want to frame it as, oh, conspiracy theory versus non-conspiracy yeah. theory. No, that's not it. It's just no. whatever is real and happening, you know, and, and it's just a pejorative. It's, it's research versus <laughs> fundamentalism. <laughs> right. And and the, the skeptics are uh, secular fundamentalism. Yes. Not everybody, of course, but especially these new atheists and these debunker agenda skeptics. Right. So I have two observations and I, I wonder how you relate to them. First, uh, it seems to me, it may be declining now, but it seems to me that the trend of the 2000s has been... A, a huge boost in this pseudo-skeptical, and, and you see it especially among the young. So it's interesting you mentioned your children because that's and and that's the pro. That's actually kind of scary because they are going to take over, and it's the it's the dumbing down, it's the polarization, it's the it's the complete decline of uh, of real free thought. They they are led to believe they are the intellectual elite. They think mm. they fought forth science when in actual fact it was esoteric and spiritual people who did that. But uh, be that as it may. And I see that many of them actually have fundamentalist background. They come from religious background. Mm -hmm. The worst of them are often, let's say, ex-Jehovah's Witnesses or something. And what happens is that, and I think it's a good thing that they go secular uh, in a way. They, it's a, it's a liberation road for them in, in many ways because you get uh, some social restraints. You get rid of that, but they don't change. Uh, how should I say? They only change content. They only throw away God and all that, but they keep the mechanism. They keep the way of thinking. They keep the emotional poison. And uh, uh, the hostility and uh, simplicity. And uh, right. it seems to me that if fundamentalism is on the rise, which is obviously is, if you look at the world, Islamism, evangelism, all sorts of religion, more and more literalism, more and more dumbing down. And then it seems to me that the skeptics and the atheists who have tangled with these people for so long have become like them. Yeah. So you have this new atheism, which is just as you say, it's a fundamentalist, it's extremism. It uses all the dirty tactics to shut down free thought. I, I don't mind so much classical atheism, actually. Those who fought the most obviously stupid and mm -hmm. <laughs> destructive parts of religion, right? 
Yeah. And, and also the more philosophical, it's fair enough if you if you don't believe in God. That's I have no problem with that. And like you said, you you in, try to invite on people who you could converse about these things because it's such an interesting conversation matter if you can engage an intelligent person about it to have a sincere exchange of ideas. But that's not what's going on here because of this fundamentalism. It's like if I should invite on a Christian guy just to learn about his worldview and instead we end up fighting trying to debunk each other <laughs> to fight which reality is true right. and it's not even about which is true it's which can win this debate so that those spectators will follow my thought patterns you know there's there's a lot to pull apart there and i just jotted down two notes that i wanted to comment on that i think are really uh Interesting. One is you talked about it being basically a reactionary position, and I've come to the same conclusion. A large part of the atheism and really scientific materialism, yeah, because they're one and the same. They're one and the same. Scientific materialism says everything is just what we see. Everything is matter. There's nothing more. Consciousness is an illusion. Basically, what they're saying when you really strip it down is your experience is an illusion. You just think you're having feelings. You know, when you see your mom or dad, those aren't real. It's just your brain. There's nothing real about it. Mm. This is the cornerstone of science as we know it, materialism. And it mirrors up with atheism just Perfectly. And what you said, I think, is really true is, is it, it for a lot of people, it's a reactionary position and it's understandable. It's like if you look at what how Christianity has just ugh, screwed people up and its history and its ability to continue to do the stuff that it does basically unbridled and unchecked in the cultism of it and all some of the, the, the bad parts of Christianity. And there's a lot of good people who find spiritual comfort and also spiritual wisdom in the Christian tradition. Yeah. Don't want to deny that. But there's a lot of people that are burned badly and feel a need to kind of fight back. And I get that. But the other thing that you said that is really unique and interesting I hadn't thought of before is that these people are bringing the same mechanism to their thinking when they switch over. So they're reacting against atheism. They're going, okay, the same thing that I was... Oh, it's often like discussing with a Jehovah's Witness. Exactly. Appeal to authority, ad hominem. I was brainwashed this way, and now I'm just going to allow myself to be brainwashed yeah. the other way, you know? Yeah, new, new gurus. Exactly. And a new... It, it's all the cultish stuff. I mean, you just look down... Why do cults succeed, including our religious cults? Because that's what they are, really. Yeah, and, and that cult is called scientism. That's the name of the troll. And so, you know, what are the elements of a cult? This sense of community, this sense of belonging, this sense of... Us against them. People understand me. But this also... The, fl the flip side is... I have to kind of hold on to these certain beliefs. I don't really yeah. challenge the, the the leaders too much, you know. True. And they'll bite you tooth and nail on that. You know, a lot of atheists will say, no, you know, I'm free to think and say whatever I want. And that's like, oh, really? You know, and just when Richard Dawkins talks, we all, even when he says crazy stuff, you just have to kind of go along with it. Yeah, but I wonder, uh, let's indulge in, in conspiracy thinking for a minute. Uh, if we have any debunkers listening, we, we have to throw them some bones, right? They love to hate that. So so I'll do that. <laughs> right. <laughs> so I wonder 
if there have been some deliberate attempts to like a kind of a psyops to to hijack to to form a strata in this thinking because what i see i mean if they were just limited to your to what you explore you explore fair game you explore the soul the consciousness you know are we you often use the word biological robot i think is the word you use Yeah, <laughs> yeah, biology. Yeah, and um, it, which I'm, which by the way, I'm, I'm borrowing. So what I sometimes say is, you know, that their position, scientific materialism, new yeah. atheism, is the position that we are biological robots in a meaningless universe. Exactly. And then people think, so people think I'm kind of making this stuff up. I mean, biological robot is right out of Richard Dawkins' book. Selfish gene, you know, right out of there. <laughs> yeah, you would admit it. Yeah, in meaningless universe is right out of uh, well, all those cosmologists. You know, it's like there's no meaning in the universe, yeah. and that's what they say. And, and so, those aren't my terms. That's no, just no, no. What they but, but, say. but they are very descriptive anyway. So it doesn't matter who invented them or who thought of them. They're spot on. Yeah, and I'm thinking. If they were limited to those kind of discussions, I wouldn't mind that much because I'm all for free thought, man. I'm completely libertarian when it comes to ideas. I mean, just identify with an idea is it's it's such a breakdown of consciousness to for any human being to personally be insulted, and that's that's why fundamentalism. I'm allergic to it because they <laughs> put all their identity into ideas. So if you attack, if you criticize an idea, you've, they feel you criticize them, and that's actually how they criticize, let's say, Islam. <laughs> But they project because they do exactly the same thing. But anyway, my point is that if they were limited to that, fine. Let's have a discussion or let's have a fight or whatever. But they are sneaking into every aspect of society and they're so fascist and reactionary and they're like exactly uh, you noticed they i know because i listened to you they attack good parts of science that doesn't even have anything to do with atheism like say no 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 you have to accept gmos we're gonna push gmos whatever it's worth yeah, when yeah. on earth did that become a matter for <laughs> philosophy right It's a health matter, and I see how destructive and poisonous they are, not on on so many aspects of society. Which is why I I finally realized, geez, we have to start fighting these people because they they are corrupting and destroying society, like all fundamentalists are. What do you think about that? Well, I think it goes even deeper than that, Al, and I think you're on the right right path. In and this is like a level two, level three discussion. So we're kind of jumping way ahead in the game, which I love to do. And I was looking forward to do with you because I'm not that interested in the kind of ABC stuff. So in that book, and I, I don't need to pump the book, just if people like anything, just come listen to the shows. They're all for free. You, know, you don't have to buy the book and get almost all the book online for free. It's not that. But I'll tell you, the first chapter in the book is this interview that I had with parapsychology researcher, Dr. Dean Radin, who is top of the notch guy, who's basically proven over and over and over again, scientifically with replicated studies that have been replicated not only in his lab, but in other labs that this scientific materialism doesn't hold because effects like telepathy and ESP and precognition are real and can be demonstrated in the lab. So that's a given. Mm. So the interview that I'm referring to, though, is an interview I had with 
uh, a guy who is this, one of these pseudo-skeptics, but you can't really say he's a pseudo-skeptic. He is scientific mainstream. Steve Novella, Dr. Steve Novella is a neurologist at, uh, at Yale University School of Medicine. I mean, this is top notch in the mm. U.S. as the elite. So to call him a skeptic is to really miss the point. This is science being done the way that science is done. And Novella's interviewing this guy named Ray Hyman, Dr. Ray Hyman from the University of Oregon. Stick with me for this story. The payoff is worth it here. Sure. So Hyman is slamming Dean Radin in the most just unprofessional way. You know, he's laughing at him. He's saying he's a weird guy. All the childish tactics, right? Yeah. And then he's making all these specific claims about his research. You know, well, he never replicates his work and this and that, it, which is totally false, provably mm. false. Mm. And I interviewed Dean Radin. And Dean Radin's just a really, he's a nice guy in addition to being a, a brilliant scientist. And he just, one after another, just knocks down Hyman's points. Who is Ray Hyman? Oh, turns out CIA hired him exactly. to do, uh, you know, statistical analysis on this. Oh, turns out when the Stargate psychic spy program, if anyone isn't familiar with it, the U.S. had a program where they used, they developed this technology. It's just psychic stuff. It's mm. remote viewing. A guy, a psychic sits there and tries to project his consciousness into that other realm and see what the Russians are doing on the other side of the world. They were tremendously successful at this. They ran the program for 20 years. All these people have come out in the program and said it was successful here, here. It had these unbelievable results. We had hits and misses, but overall it was tremendously successful. Hyman is hired by the CIA to write a hit piece to bury that research and say there's nothing there. Now, any just logical person stands back and goes, well, wait a minute. Yeah, they funded it for 20 years. They had to go through all those cycles. They had all these different agencies involved, CIA, NSA, uh, Naval Intelligence, Army Intelligence, all these people. And, and now it's been de declassified and people have written all these books. Yeah. And this guy wrote a book saying none of it ever happened. And now here he is popping up again because Dean Radin proves this stuff in the lab. And who pops up again? Isn't it strange that this Clown from University of Oregon is called out of the <laughs> called out of the woodwork again. Come on, give us a little spiel on why this is all bullshit. It's not like a mastermind thing. I don't believe there's like this master puppet controlling thing. No. It's just somebody has a Rolodex, and when they want a certain thing kind of pushed a certain way, they go through the Rolodex and they go, you know, this guy's pretty reliable push him out there and he'll probably say the right thing. And invariably he does. And I think that's how the game is played. Well, um, yeah, yeah. Actually, now that you said CIA, of course, that's the buzzword. So now they're, uh, now the machines have picked up this conversation. Hopefully they learn something. <laughs> But no, they actually launched the derogatory term meant to shut down an intelligent and system critical dissident debate the word yes. conspiracy theory. Yes. That's proven. And I mean, that's not the conspiracy theory. That's Google it, people. The evidence is out there and they admit it. It's open. So they invented that word back in the day uh, after the JFK affair when he was killed in order to try to shut down a critical debate. And it's worked very well uh, for their agenda. And I'm not saying all the gurus in the 
pseudoskeptical new atheist milieu are you know hired shills uh, some of them are, are just plain stupid right some of them have a lot of issues i'm sure uh some of them are sincere but when this movement well, you, you know let me just interject because what, sure. what i've discovered and what i've come to believe is that you know you don't need a shill there's like like you just said well you need a few i think to to i don't to, even think you need any because there's such okay. a diversity of opinion out there you can right. find people who are, who are the mouthpiece for what you're saying and it's kind of a, a a harsh word but it's really true you know the old stalin useful idiot so Stalin's saying useful idiot you know here are all these americans who are protesting for communism you know and saying that he said hey there you go. Feed the beast over there. They'll just keep saying it. I think there's a lot of professors out there and a lot of people in academia where all you have to do is say, hey, that's that's our guy. He doesn't even know he's our guy. Just keep him saying what he's saying. All right. Right. And so they just fund them instead. They find them and they fund them. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. I agree with that because it's not like they take a guy and say, hey, you have to think all these things that you don't agree with just to be a gatekeeper. No, no, I agree. They pick, they, they fund what, where they want society to go. That's the kind of right. social engineering thing, right? Right. So, uh, but it's so interesting. I mean, I can understand that they fund everything that the multinational corporations, a globalist uh, agenda, that is obvious. But they also do it on stuff where you wouldn't think it could be a threat to the powers that be. Why is the powers that be yes. so afraid of, let's say, near-death experience, which you, right. you've been delving very hands-on into? There is a larger agenda here that is ideological, if not philosophical. Oh, totally. And yeah. So yeah, any thoughts? Well, I, I think you hit the nail on the head. If you look at, and we could do all conspiracy, and it'd be fun to do it. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna kind of, I'm gonna kind of go there. I, I think we will dance around with different things, but we're here now, so let's get dirty on our hands. Yeah, let's get dirty. So you know, yeah. if you remember the James Randi thing, which oh, if yeah. people don't remember, he was really the epitome, the focal point for this skeptical kind of over the top debunking everything kind of thing. His background is extremely, extremely interested and fits this conspiratorial profile. And I have to digress for a minute and tell these stories because they're not told very often. Mm -hmm. But look, folks, again, like Al said a minute ago, go Google this. So James Randi is a closeted gay man. I don't have any problem with that. And he's an older guy. So you think back about the days when he was probably coming of age, you know, it was not a time to come out and say, I'm gay, you know, because it was not accepted. <laughs> Look yeah. in the history of what happened to this guy. He is caught by the police making, uh, doing sexual phone calls with this group in, uh, I, I'm pretty sure it's in the state of upstate New York where he's living at the time and the police get involved and Randy is let off because he said he was helping the police try and catch these dirty boys who were making these prank phone calls. Now, does that sound... Uh, and they accepted it just well, like that? Yeah, but so the real story then is, I think, and no one's really put this piece together. Mm -hmm. So James Randi goes on and seems to have this agenda that's closely tied to this other agenda we're talking about, which is to kind of crush mysticism, crush extended consciousness, yeah. wherever it pops up with these super aggressive tactics. Well, if you connect that with what we know about how people's sexual 
uh, habits or just sexual preferences or attitudes or behavior can be used to get them to do things that, you know, blackmail or just encourage, you right. know, it, I don't think it yeah, takes a classical a, Intel uh, strategy. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Classical Intel strategy. I can't make that connection. I don't say I have the evidence to make that connection. But that first part of that story, if you dig for it, and they tried to scratch it from the internet, but you'll find it. And anyone who looks at that says, hey, that's that's bullshit. That, that, that can't possibly be how that came down. And so the way it relates back to kind of an less conspiratorial kind of thing is Randy is known for having said when he first formed the Center for Scientific or PSYOP or, or what was the name of it? The, the, it was the Skeptic Society. I forget the yeah, acronym because then they changed it to CSI, whatever. But they mm. came to him, his people came to him and said, hey, you know, on this one, we kind of it doesn't look like we have the goods on these guys. So I don't know. We should probably admit that this form of astrology, the way we measured the Mars influence, it did statistically come out there. It goes, no, we cannot. We can't let the mystics win. We can't let mm. this other side win. So Yeah, because in the 90s, there was a boost in new age. In yeah. People were very open. They explored I mean, too much, if you ask me. Uh, anything went. And yeah, there was a lot of uh, quacks and stuff. But it seems that in the 2000, the pendulum has gone the other way to secularism, fundamentalism. Mm -hmm. So something happened there. But are you saying that this incident in Randy's life was very early on before he became this uh, debunking guru? Yes. Ah, interesting. Very early. Very, interesting. very early in his career when he was more, uh, he was uh, a magician, a stage magician yeah, was his yeah. main uh, claim to fame. And it's just a little factoid. And so, but back to your point, which is really, really, I think, uh, penetrating this issue. It's like, why would science care so much about near-death experience? You know, mm. when, when Eben and Alex... And why would CIA care about that? Well, <laughs> exactly. And yeah. I'll tell you, I, I want to get back... Science ought to care about that. But... And, and I want to get back to that point in a minute, because I mm. think the Stargate remote viewing project has something to say there that is very interesting. But so near death, you brought up the near death experience thing. Mm. And again, if you take a step back and you say, okay, how is this really a science per se issue? It's really a medical issue, right? I mean, people are dying. They're being resuscitated. The researchers of near-death experience, if you look at their background, they're all medical guys, right? So Dr. Pin van Lommel in the Netherlands, he was a cardiologist forever, highly acclaimed. And you just read his account. He said, hey, you know, during my early in my career, when you had a cardiac arrest, you died. That was it. Yeah. And then these resuscitation techniques started to get better and better. And we started to be able to bring people back. Well, lo and behold, I started to bring people back and they were telling me, doctor, I, I don't want to come back. I was in this other place and it was amazing. Yeah. And he's a curious physician. He doesn't have any skin in the game. He's not a religious guy. He doesn't have any agenda. He's like, wow, that's amazing. I've never heard that story before. He hears it once. He hears it twice. He goes, I ought to investigate this. Man. So he starts investigating these people that have these accounts. And that leads to all this. And then he says, hey, some of these people have been 
dead, quote unquote, and that's the medical clinical term for it, dead. Some of these people have been dead for only a short period of time. But some of these people, and a lot of people won't know this, but if you have a cardiac arrest in a modern hospital, especially if it was 20 or 30 years ago, you're not resuscitated for two, sometimes three, four minutes. It's not like you see in the movies where you go flatline, there's already, you know, there's immediately people pounding on your chest. It doesn't work that way. So he found that some of these people had been dead for 30 seconds. Some of these people had been dead for four or five minutes. Mm. Same experience, no different. Some of these people have been heavily sedated. Some of these people had anesthesia, which we should have no memory, no recollection. Same experience. Again, this does not fit the neurological model. Mm. But my point really in all that is this is basically a medical kind of question. So what happens, though, like a couple of years ago when Harvard, neuro, uh, Harvard neurologist, Harvard brain surgeon, Eben Alexander, has his own near-death experience and comes out with his New York Times best-selling book, he is slammed. He is attacked. I mean, the, it's, it's just undeniable that oh yeah that the wolf pack is at him yeah there, there mm. was an organized effort they attacked him on the most silly grounds they said oh he's a he's a harvard neurosurgeon he doesn't know anything about neuroscience he should be a neuro- when people say idiotic stuff like that we're conditioned where a lot of people just nod their head and go yeah that's right and then mm. you do a reality check down no, for God's sake, he's a brain surgeon. Of course he knows neurology. He doesn't become a, a Harvard brain surgeon without knowing neurology. It's a crazy, crazy claim. But yet, yeah. so it's all, I'll wind it all the way back to your point there. Mm-hmm. Why did they come at that so hard? Because it reached this level in the public awareness that they felt they had to put it down. Mm. There's no other way really, really to explain it. Because otherwise, it's just kind of a, a medical mystery, which we have a million of them. Mm. Yeah, but I'm pretty sure the people who want to crack down on this, uh, those who fund that, they have an agenda which is not philosophical. Right. I, I, in fact, I'm pretty sure they are aware of this reality, which is kind of probably why they don't want us to go there um i mean we can only speculate about their intentions but it has no practical bearing as far as i can see i mean how can this be a threat to their political or their commercial agenda in the world if people become let me interject let me interject with another story i can't i can't answer that question but it's the right question it's the Mm. right question let's return to it because it's like how could this affect their uh political or economic agenda right Mm -hmm. so that's the question we can't answer that but a story i think is key to to it there's this guy out there i mentioned the stargate program yeah so it was a program in started oh 20 30 years ago in uh, by Stanford Research Institute, and one of the guys I interviewed is this guy named Doctor, uh, not Doctor. His name is uh, Joe McGonigal, mm-hmm. and he was, they say, psychic spy number one. Here's Joe. Oh, hang on, hang on. Is it this uh, this movie man who talks with goats or something? Uh, which no. supposedly was about these things. No, something else. Okay. Oh, so it's related. Mm. Now, so <laughs> you know, if we really get deep into it, but it was portrayed like a. You know, like a comical, uh, small thing in that movie. I know for a fact that it was much bigger and more serious than it was how huge. Hollywood portrayed it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was yeah. huge. So, so because they had the whole. So the the bigger picture is 
our intelligence organization got very, very interested in the mind mm. and what are the powers of the mind, what are the limits of the mind, can we weaponize LSD them? they launched, yes, yes. Exactly. Mm. So you have that, all that MK Ultra stuff yep. and it all is exposed because it was done up in Canada and they had a Real Freedom of Information Act and all this stuff came out. Anyone can go look at that. They were doing anything they could. And to a certain extent, we understand that because we want intelligence to protect us and to protect us, they have to go to some dark places. Well, they went to some really dark places. So the men at Sterrett... <laughs> and they the never came Sterrett, back. <laughs> yeah, they never came. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're still out there. Yeah. So the men at Sterrett Goats guys were this group in Virginia, but it's all under the same program. It's all this mind okay. stuff. How hmm. can we weaponize it? How can we control it? How can we prevent the Russians from mind controlling us? So the men that stare at goats were, how can we weaponize it? How can we get someone to psychokinetically stare at a goat and make his heart stop and make him die? And if we can do that, can we do that to a real soldier? And there's a realness to this. But then on the other coast of the United States, in California, there's this group at Stanford Research Institute, and they're taking a different tact. And it's called Stargate, and it's doing this remote viewing stuff. Right. Can we spy on the enemy just by doing this particular protocol it's psychic stuff it's they don't call, call yeah, it the ingo swan stuff right ingo swan right yeah. who is a psychic also is a scientologist by the way very high oh, high-ranking scientologist um but science that was just further mind interested in mind stuff mind stuff so back to this story one of the guys who comes and joins that program and becomes one of these psychic spies is a guy named Joe McConnell. Joe McConnell's history is this. He is in the army and he's a real spy, feet on the ground spy on the eastern, on the east-west German border. And he goes into a restaurant and he's- Hang on, when, when, when approximately was he operating? Oh. 70s, 80s? I, I imagine it'd be the 70s. I'm just guessing. That's very interesting. I, I, I'll let you continue, but I have to interject that then he was working directly under a Nazi boss called, uh, oh my God, it slips me right now. It's my lack of sleep here. Because um, the, the, the Allies, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, they, they, a Nazi was actually running the, yes. that agency. I learned, this, I learned this from your show. And you're, you're, <laughs> exactly. You're with, uh, but anyway, go on. I knew, I knew about Project Paperclip, but where you end the. Oh, it's much bigger than that, man. And the intelligence angle, but where you guys took it, which was just eye opening to me, is the extent. To, his name starts with a G. I can't remember it either. But they, the, the, to the extent to which they relied on these guys. So let's see. So he was in the Stargate project from 70. Let's see, military career. I'm at his. I'm at his Wikipedia. We all love Wikipedia. So Reinhard Gerland is the, is his boss. Yes, 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 yes. yes. Um, so this would have been in the early '70s, probably. Yep, Gerland died in '79. So not only was it his agency, but he was probably still uh, chief in operation. But anyway, so tell us about this guy. So this guy's on the east-west border in Germany. He goes into a restaurant. He comes out of the restaurant, and he falls over, and he's dead. Hmm. He was probably poisoned. He was probably found out to be a spy and poisoned. That's what he later suspected. You know, yeah, I mean, yeah. even if you get food poisoning, you don't walk out of the restaurant and keel over and die. Yeah, that's how they work. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. He has the classic near-death experience where he's, boom, he's bounced outside of his body. He sees 
his body there. He sees him load him onto the ambulance. He sees the ambulance driving through the driving through the, the, the streets as fast as they can to get him to the hospital. He sees the whole thing. Classic mm. near-death experience. Has the experience of then going to this other realm. As soon as he comes back from this near-death experience, he wakes up in the hospital, eyes pop open, and there are two intelligence officers right on top of him. Okay, what happened? What's going on? What do you... And he doesn't know what to do, so he tells him what happened. He says, I don't know how to explain this, but I had this, you know, crazy thing, da-da-da-da. So they do the main, they do all the briefing and all that stuff. Mm. He then goes on to his military career. In 1978, he's asked to show up in Stanford Research Institute to join this psychic spying program. Mm -hmm. And... They open up. He sees them. This is an interview I had with him. You can go and listen to it. I'm oh, not making okay. any of this stuff up. He, he, they open up his top secret personnel file. So he sees his, his, his personnel file, and it has this red label on it. It says top secret. They rip it open, and they pull out a copy of Raymond Moody's book. Raymond Moody yeah, is the, the first guy. Yeah the classic book that first started the near-death experience science thing. And they say, aha. And as Joe tells the story, this increased their interest in him as being a candidate for this remote viewing psychic stuff. And he turned out to be very good at it. So interesting, interesting little factoid. But play it back now into what we were talking about just a minute ago, Al. Mm -hmm. What it tells me is that in 1978, there was no pseudo-skepticism among military intelligence. They were like, heck yeah, there's some kind of connection here. Uh, th this, this stuff works. There's something that's to this. Thing. You mean at the lower level or, or what you mean among people who work for them? It's in, at some level, at a level that is really a decision-making level. So we yeah. don't know. We can't answer your question other, of whether or not that was part of their overall agenda. But I think there's a stark contrast between what science, institutional science, mainstream science has been kind of wrestling with, oh my gosh, darn it, is this, any of this stuff real? No, psychics can't possibly be real. Everything is material, <laughs> right? They're playing that game. Meanwhile, these guys are going, fuck, yes, it's real. We know it's real. This guy had a near-death experience. These guys are doing remote viewing. Yeah. We, we got to do everything we can to figure this out. But for them, what is off the table, it would seem to me, is the idea that this doesn't happen. That's off the table. They're not going down that path. They're trying to figure it out, trying to weaponize it, trying to perfect it, all oh, yeah. those things. But, but as far They're as They're not entertaining it philosophically. They know it's a real thing. Exactly. And they're certainly not entertaining philosophically the idea of strict materialism. That's out the window. It's clearly out the window. Otherwise, don't do this stuff. Yeah, that's, that's a useful idiot, that goon. That's, what they use. that's the gatekeeper's tactics, as I yeah. see it. Right. So, then so, they, so, so they discover the reality of this, and let's say that everything we've uh, uh, fronted now of, of ideas is, let's say that's how it went down. Then obviously, okay, the, this is a reality, and we can infer from that that they conclude that we cannot let people in general 
embrace this reality. And the most... Why? 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 You ask that question, you answer... Hang on, hang on. There's a disturbance on the line. Uh, I guess we went too deep down the rabbit hole. Uh, <laughs> okay, okay. You, why don't you call me right back? Yeah, I think I think I have to do that. Okay. okay. Yep. How's that? Oh, it's better. It's back to to normal. I will not edit that. People will be able to hear. I've never had that disturbance. Where disturbance sound? It sounds like someone was jamming the line. Yeah. <laughs> well, I have to say, it's, if it's, nothing else, it's beautiful because <laughs> the timing is great, right? Well placed. Yeah. <laughs> But I was challenging you there, Al. I mean, yeah. you you asked the question, please. Please offer offer an answer to it because it's just the perfect question. Why? Why would they- yeah yeah? I was I was just uh, trying to treat it logically, right? So mm-hmm. they say okay. So now we need to gatekeep. And what's the best? I mean, in the medieval ages, they used the, the Inquisition to keep people in check, to keep people within a paradigm. True. I see that the pseudo skeptics, the debunkers, the new atheists are precisely the same kind of people that would be inquisitioners back in the medieval ages. So they take, we have already this uh, atheism thing out there, mm-hmm. this materialism, let's use that. I'm not saying it was like a premeditated strategic thought like that, but for better or worse, it became the tool right. that they use to keep people's mentality in check, especially when you see that in the 80s, this new age phenomenon came. Yeah. And people strayed away from the traditional religions that worked very well, many of them, especially the Abrahamic religions, very well to keep people within uh, a mental prison. And in the 80s and the 90s, it explodes. In the 90s, it even becomes more intelligent, this uh, freedom of thought movement. But of course, it went all... uh, everywhere and and too far many places but so we need to stop this that's kind of how they have had to think because otherwise if they wanted us to know about these things they wouldn't put the lid down on mm-hmm. it they would come out with these things but it's it's such a threat it's such a real thing for them that they can even weaponize it yes and then they need a monopoly they need to own it mm-hmm. that's what they do with all these breakthrough these uh, borderlines things That makes a lot of sense to me. And I'd pick up on a couple of things that you said. First thing that I think you were going down this path where you're kind of saying, like, if you're just if you're not super into kind of controlling everything, because no one can really do that. But you sit back and you go, am I for or against an increased understanding of the greater person and this extended consciousness? I look like, I don't know. I have nothing to gain. <laughs> you know, I, I'm the I'm a culture maker. I'm a controller. I'm, you know, intelligence. No, there's nothing for us in people getting smart about this stuff. And then hmm. the second thing that I pick up from what you say is that I totally agree with is I think sometimes the 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 operational way that the th- the way these things are operationalized, the way they're implemented, a lot of times it's just opportunistic. It's like, oh, well, look, things that seem to be going that way. Let's keep things going that way. That seems to be a good direction. Oh, things mm. like this we don't like. Oh, let's see if we can kind of push that down a little bit. So there doesn't have to be some big grandmaster plan. It can just say, you know what? Extended consciousness. We don't want people thinking about that too much. 
Let's mm. see what seems to be working and kind of promote that a little bit. Yeah, because people tend to become more independent-minded exactly. and system-critical, right? System-critical, exactly. Yeah, we know that uh, Intel uh, operations have been heavily presented in uh, uh, journalism, for instance, which is one of their main tools of creating a public narrative. And it's all crumbling right now. Yeah, right? Yeah. I've never seen anything like that. People have never been more aware of the controllers of the Intel bastards. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so, um, and then they hijack science. And I enjoy, while I enjoy this path we're on now, because of limited time, I want us to gradually come back to the more philosophical points eventually and the scientific points. But sure. Uh, to complete this thread then, so they invest in, and, and, and you, maybe you've heard that on a show, they also do it in technology. Mm -hmm. They try to keep a lid on certain things. Right. So, but there has to be something more than just the philosophy when they try to control the consciousness narrative. It has to be something that they know or they th suspect out there about it that is a direct threat to their interests. Yeah. Because yeah. ordinary, if someone gets enlightened, they tend to withdraw, actually, from the political scene, from the social... Uh, they don't become like rebels, Che Guevara and stuff like that. They, they usually... The classical enlightened person, right? So why are they so afraid? Well, where you're leading us back, Al, is to one of your strong suits from the show is the esoteric and the occult. Right. And you just cannot look away from that and, and ask yourself how that factors in. And then if you're inclined, not be inclined to, you have to look. Hello? Hello? We have to talk about Gnosticism. We have to talk about occult. Are you there? Yes. Have you been talking all this time? Yeah. Uh, what happened was that we got disconnected. I've never experienced this, especially not that you are not aware that this happened. We got disconnected. I tr okay. tried to call you back, and uh -huh. suddenly <laughs> I called you back, and suddenly you were talking. Like it's as if you've been... Uh, uh, this is so weird. Yeah, yeah, it's really weird. I, I usually joke around uh, when interference happens, but uh, this is getting spooky. <laughs> I guess they're having fun with us because there's nothing we're saying here that is not out there already. So if anyone is trying to interfere with this conversation, it's just to fuck with us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But... Um, they should listen and learn instead of, uh, especially now that we're going more uh, philosophical. But could you try to reconstruct what you've been saying the last minute? Well, I, I can try and reconstruct it, but I, I'll simplify it because then I want to get you to respond. Because what I was leading up to was where you are leading us is back into the realm that you've spent so much time investigating yourself, which are... Oh, yeah, the esoteric, yeah. What are the connections with the occult? What are the connections with the esoteric? What are connections with the hidden wisdom and knowledge? And then extending that even further, what's going on with these the, with the ET realm? Because when you walk into that, oh, yeah. uh, hey, you know, whatever you think about that, it's all about consciousness. It's very related, yes, yes. That's the hot button there. So, you know, Jacques Vallée and oh, yeah. everyone, that's all they're talking about now is consciousness, consciousness, consciousness. I don't mm. quite agree with the take they're taking. I think they've kind of fallen in love with it without really thinking it through. But 
the point being, we can't really draw these hard lines what, like we'd like to and say, okay, right. this is where science stops. And then occultism, that's something else. You know, this is, you know, no, there, it's all in, it all relates back to this question of consciousness. What is that little voice inside your head really? And what does that mean in terms of how you relate to the world? Right, right. Yeah, no, you, I think you're onto it now. Because um, the classical way of thinking is, and it's very, that's very formed, shaped by the Abrahamic religions. And, that, and, and it fits hand in glove with the uh, secular yeah. reductionist materialist uh, notion. And that is that uh, there are two uh, different kind of realities is the material reality and then it's the immaterial reality uh -huh. uh, the only difference is that the skeptics the, the atheists uh, pseudo-skeptics i should say no, not used to but you're a skeptic but the pseudo-skeptics uh, they they agree only they deny that there is an immaterial world so they only buy into the it's actually the same as philosophical satanism uh-huh uh -huh. i know it it's not meant derogatory or anything but if you examine philosophical satanism that's exactly the same thing it's only the material world is the real one nothing else exists so we are soulless robots and uh, of course we are consumers we are useful uh, ants exactly. i can see how that can benefit the powers that be but if you examine uh, breakthrough science it goes back to the esoteric roots it's like the snake biting its tail uh, because if you look at the ancient let's say the ancient uh, pythagoreans but this goes for all natural philosophies but let's use the pythagoreans as an example sure they claimed that reality consists of three different stratas uh -huh. uh, they call it, uh, let's say, logos, pneuma, and uh, psyche. Now, logos would be the atomic energy, the material substance, the vibrations that make up what eventually becomes atoms and then becomes um, molecules and so on until we can perceive it in shapes, colors, etc. So that's, and that's what the atheists say, that this is the only thing existing. Right, but if you, according to the ancient philosophers, it's yes, our senses are directed towards that ray of creation, that vibe. Uh, and I'm a firm believer in the wave rather than the particle. In my mind, stuff becomes a particle when consciousness observes it. It becomes like a frozen wave in the space time. But as soon as the consciousness goes away from it. Well, all the time, actually, it's a wave, but I'll not lose myself in that. So they say that's one strata, but the two other vibrations, two other rays, two other energy types is pneuma, which is life force, and psyche, which is consciousness. And according to them, pneuma is what we need to stay alive. That's the vitality. That's a life force. So it can be researched and discovered indirectly, at least. It's like gravity. We know it's there by its effects. Yes, and it's interesting. Yes. Yeah. And then you have the third one, which is psyche, which is consciousness, which is what we used to observe with. So what's observed is the matter energy. Uh, what makes us able to, to be connected to that level, to stay alive, basically, is the vital energy. And what makes us able to observe something at all is the 
consciousness energy, the psyche. And according to them, these are all material in a way, physical, in that they are all real vibrations. They are all uh-huh. three. It's three different stratas of reality. In ancient Egypt, they call it. Uh, or in India and even in Christianity, you have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, right? Shiva, yeah. Bra- Brahma, Vishnu, Isis, Osiris, Horus, etc. So that's the threefold uh, race of existence. And in scientific terms, it will be consciousness, life force, and material energy. And because for some reason we are directed towards, our senses are directed towards the material, that's what we can sense. So it's harder to explore and discover Mm. and uh, realize, recognize the two others by scientific method. And that's because the scientific method is based upon only that vibrational ray that atoms are made of. So we have this problem then that we kind of think of the two others as invisible, non-existent. But you know as well as me that the vibrational sciences that were climaxing before the war but but became hijacked after the war because they realized how important it is. Mm. We know that there's a huge gap in electromagnetic spectra that we can't perceive directly, but we can... We even have tools now to apply them, and we couldn't have this conversation if they didn't make use of it. Uh, so we know it's, uh, we can only sense with our five senses just small fragments of this reality. So let's say then, so it's called spiritual materialism, mm-hmm. that it's as physical, consciousness is as tangible, it's better to say, as real as matter. It's only you can't touch, touch it because it's a part of you. It's a part of what you use as a tool to perceive matter. I'm, I'm going very deep philosophical now, but are you with me? We, I, I, I'm with you. And, and if I can, l- let me, I, I love what you're the saying. The ball is yours. Oh, well, here's what I was going to say. You said you're a wave man versus a particle man. And, and I love that. I love where you're going. And I just want to know if I could kind of tell you this story that's been on my mind for a while that we've explored on Skeptico. And it's more of the kind of mainstream Skeptico stuff that I do. Mm-hmm. So there's this researcher we were just talking about, Dean Radin, and uh, he's at the IONS Institute that was set up by the astronaut Edgar Mitchell, and he took a bunch of money and he hired all these really smart scientists. So Dean Radin used to work at Bell Labs, and he has a PhD, and he used to be a professor, and now he gets to do this psychic kind of stuff. So one of his experiments was showing that people have precognition. They can see things before they happen, which really blows everything out of the water, like in another way of what we're talking about. But his latest experiment is the experiment that you're alluding to. The old double slit experiment. Is it a wave? Is it a particle? Mm. And this is such a great touch point, I think, because when we talk about science, where people will, and, and when you talk about science and consciousness and philosophical stuff, where you wind up doing is talking about quantum physics. That's where mm. the subject goes. And mm. this is probably one of the most famous and debated experiments in quantum physics. It's the double slit experiment. You shoot a photon beam through these two holes. Does it wind up as a particle or does it wind up as a wave? And as you alluded to, the implications for it are that a conscious observer, consciousness, something like what goes on in us, changes it from a wave to a particle, meaning that the entire, the broader implications for that would be that the entire universe then is being created 
by consciousness. And the entire universe is born out of consciousness rather than the other way around that we are a product of this material world, right? So- or at least that consciousness has uh, influential, that it's higher up in the hierarchy, so to speak, than matter, that it's uh, dominant right. compared to mind over matter, basically. Right. Although that middle ground is kind of hard to hold. That becomes panpsychism mm. and says, well, maybe consciousness is spread about all the matter. But when you really walk through that philosophically, you're kind of forced to leap one way or another. But I want to leave all that aside and bring it down to more, kind of a more concrete example. So our friend Dean Radin said, okay, I can test that. Tell you what I'll do. I'll set up a little photon beam shooter. I'll shoot the photons through the double slits one at a time. Mm-hmm. And I'll set up a little meditator over here, a guy who's, you know, really good at meditation. Mm. And I'll ask him to focus his consciousness, his awareness, and change the pattern from the change the pattern from the wave to the particle. Now, Dean Radin, I am super simplifying his work. He is a yeah, really smart guy. And you can go online, folks, and watch the presentation that he does. And he has all the slides. He breaks down exactly how he did his research. His research, he replicated multiple times. He's now had independent replications from another lab in another part of the world. It's, uh, it's real science stuff by a real scientist. And he shows that this happens, that Mm. consciousness is collapsing the wave function. Now, this is a huge thing. And now, so back to kind of what we were originally talking to, why why is this a huge thing? And and how how does mainstream science tackle this? Because what mainstream science decided a long time ago about the quantum physics problem, because the, the, the quantum physics crisis back in the 1910s, 1920s is all the smartest people were coming to the conclusion, well, it's kind of game over. It's really about consciousness. It's not about all this physical mm-hmm. stuff. So you had uh, uh, Niels Bohr and you had Schrodinger and they're talking about mysticism and they're talking about and, – and Max Planck oh, yeah. is saying it's all consciousness. But then some people – jumped in and said, you know, that's too freaking philosophical. Uh, Shut up and calculate like you used to say in your shows. (laughs) Which we have to talk about. We have to talk about because people, this we live in a shut up and calculate world, which is okay. You know, so shut up and calculate world is they come in and they say, you know what? That may be true. It may not be true. But I'd sure like to create a, a worldwide a cellular phone system with satellites and all the rest of that. And for that, I need the calculations that are implied in this quantum physics. So shut up about your mysticism, calculate how we do this. We can create a chip and then we can do all this shit. And they did, right? They built an incredible world. Quantum physics is at the base of all the technology that we're most dazzled with right now. There is a quantum physics and complicated mathematical equations that consistently work associated with that. But we can't lose sight of that that what we've done is done shut up and calculate. We've never really addressed the philosophical question of are we, is our consciousness collapsing the, the wave function? So Dean Radin does this. And then I talked to Harvard physicist uh, Sean Carroll, who is, you know, totally fronting. I mean, he's just a skeptic. He's just a materialist. He comes up with all this wacky way of kind of knocking this stuff down. And he goes, no, man, that's not what quantum physics was about at all. And that's what Niels Bohr, Niels Bohr didn't say that. None of these people said that. I mean, 
This is provable. You can go back and look at the quotes. And so I'm kind of getting lost in the story. So Sean, this is the example of the debate that I think we're talking about. The phony debate, mm. right? Like here's the guy who really does the research, answers the question. What's the pushback from mainstream science? Well, Harvard physicist Sean Carroll, when I interviewed him and I said, what about Dean Radin's experiment where he shows that he collapsed the wave function? He goes, well, I don't have a time. I don't have time to go track down every stupid wrong experiment and show why it's wrong. I go, well, this is published in a peer-reviewed journal. I mean, mm. what? Do you, well, not all peer-reviewed journals. You know, all the standards kind of stuff. But then they misrepresent physics, and they say this isn't what quantum physics is all about. Well, I guess the payoff of this is that I went back to Dean Radin, and I said, well, Dean, what about what this guy's saying? Mm. And the first thing he says is, well, what I did was a direct test of the Von Neumann, as in John von Neumann, who a lot of people thought was the smartest man in history, inventor of uh, so many things in computers and all the rest of that. That, he goes, I just did a, a direct test of his interpretation of quantum physics. So I've kind of drawn out this story, maybe, but if I can touch the high points, you know, here's somebody who gets past the shut up and calculate, tries to answer the philosophical question by doing a direct experiment. That's what Dean Radin does. Mm -hmm. He proves it. And how does science respond to it? They just change history. They say, well, that's never what it was about. Quantum physics is, isn't about that. And it's like total bullshit. It's easy to prove that, yeah, that's exactly what John von Neumann hypothesized. And Dean Radin did an exact test of it and proved it. But that's the situation we live in. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, you, you touched something very important there. You said that uh, consciousness can influence matter. Now, if you watch history, any controller, any powers that be, only acts when their power is threatened. Yeah. So that must be the ultimate goal for anyone. You, you say science, but I, I don't agree that science per se is the culprit here. Uh, some scientific institutions, some scientific uh, gurus, sure. But science is science. You can't corrupt it. It's a method. It's not... Uh, yeah, yeah. Science, it's just a tool. It's not a position statement. Yeah, exactly. But people today and the new atheists and the skeptics and all those, like you said before we started, they are so unscientific that they actually worship science as a religious institution, like a Vatican. But that's not science. That's scientism. Yeah. But anyway, so power. So if it's true then that consciousness has a dominant and influential effect on matter, that is a huge deal. That is something that, because what if all the people, I mean, look at history again. What did Catholicism do? They wanted to control people's consciousness. Mm -hmm. their, their, because that was the biggest threat. You, you could be a dissident. You could, be, you could do anything, basically, even if it was immoral, as long as it, you did it privately. Mm -hmm. But if you challenged the dogmas of the church, you would be crushed. Yeah. We laugh of it now, oh, how primitive they are. But it's, it's the same thing now. It's just much more sophisticated. It's the same useful idiot, same, same kind of people who are maintaining, not everyone was a Catholic agent, but if I reported you so you got burnt on the stake, I could do it out of fear, I could do it out of bias, uh, I didn't have to be, be uh, an agent per se. Mm -hmm. But it's the same thing now, and so it must be something explosive there that, let's say, if there wasn't people trying to 
or institutions even, or ideologies, whatever you have. Everyone who is reactionary, everyone who tries to keep us down in an authority within the prison, the mental prison, they wouldn't do it if it was just bullshit, if it was just illusions. They wouldn't right. spend all these resources, right. all this time, all this energy. There's something there to be discovered. And if people get free, their power will crumble. That's what they fear. And that's very interesting because then we are talking about something that, which is more explosive than atom bombs, basically. You know, and uh, I always like to take that down a notch, not that I disagree with you, but just look at it and say, it'd sure be, if you were running everything, it'd sure be a nuisance. It'd be a pain in the ass. You know, if people really did start thinking independently, if they did start exploring the full potential of their consciousness, it'd make them a lot harder to control. And even if that wouldn't, even if that wouldn't crush anything, It'd be a pain in the ass. It'd be a nuisance. It's much easier. To- no, I, I, I disagree, actually, because if it was just illusions, then they, they don't mind that. They don't mind people becoming Scientologists, Jehovah's Witnesses, oh. because they go into... Oh, they the, like uh, that. I think they, they yeah, like Yeah, voluntary that. prisons, right? Oh, yeah. They, yeah. They're not working with the powers that be, but they're controlled, they're kept down. So this is more, this is more, this is uh, revolutionary. This is uh, the new frontier of, of the revolution, actually. I think it's uh, tangible and real. And if it's true, what the ancients said, that all three stratas of, uh, in, in Kabbalah, they talk about that the world is not created, it's in creation. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. They talk about uh, the world is emanating, it's waves emanating, or, and we are co-creators. So let's say that, millions of people were focusing on the same thing. And let's say that that would actually be achieved. Then you see how it's important, how important it is that let's focus on, yeah. <laughs> focus your consciousness on the Pope in the medieval ages, focus your Pope in the Soviet time on, on the Cold War, fear, fear the enemy, on your president. You see, we have to focus on materialism. No, no, there's no spacecraft out there or there's no light beings uh, floating about, whatever, right? Yes. They have to kind of control the narrative because consciousness may manifest or uncover things they don't want to. That That's kind of, like if I was a detective, this is the ultimate problem. We, we're not concretizing it, of course, but we're conceptualizing it. So something there, something to do with power, control. Have you ever heard of the Global Consciousness Project? Yeah, I've heard a word. I'm not sure what it is. Please enlighten us. Well, again, and I love the way this conversation is going because I love to bounce from the big picture, higher level realms down to the, okay, what can we point our finger at and Hmm. look at an experiment? Here's an experiment. And these guys, uh, uh, Roger Nelson, who was formerly at the Princeton lab that spent so much time investigating parapsychology, just to give a quick background. So Princeton had the pair lab. Um, gosh, Prince, I forget what it stands for. The pair lab, we can look it up, but yep. what they were involved in is saying, okay, let's see if psychic phenomena that is consciousness can affect like random number generators. So they'd put right. this random number generator up and it's flipping up zeros and ones and someone would sit down and your job was to be, okay, make it come up with ones more than zeros or zeros more than ones. And people- and they, Yeah, I've heard about that. Yes. So they did this experiment millions and millions of times, literally. 
and they achieved results that only slight change, you know, but it wasn't 50-50. And folks, it should come out exactly 50-50. And statistically, the results are astronomically in favor of something happening, astronomically against the null hypothesis, nothing has happened. So Roger Nelson leaves the para, the, the para lab at Princeton is disbanded. Roger Nelson begins this independent research and he has a thought. He says, you know what? I wonder if this consciousness that seems to be showing up in our lab is at work all the time among all of us throughout the globe. Mm. So he sends out these little things that you can hook up to your computer to people who are approved in his program and they're little random number generators. And he wants to measure and he can measure it in real time, whether when world events happen, the, the randomness becomes not as random, hmm. whether they change a little bit, whether they change in unison, whether they don't change in unison. Hmm. And anyone can go to the Global Consciousness Project. He's done an amazing job of compiling all this data and take a look at an event like 9-11. Right. It is off the charts. There's nothing conspiracy about it. It's just that here is a worldwide event and these random number generators that are spread out around the world are all going nuts statistically now. They're only switching a little bit. On New Year's, he can time it. New Year's, as the New Year's moves around the globe, these random number generators are fluctuating. This shouldn't happen. What it implies is back to our point that consciousness is something real, measurable, and it has an effect on our physical world. To what extent? We don't know. This measurement is only very small, but it blows the paradigm off of, and you said, you know, we can't say science, you know, and this and that. <laughs> I kind of, that's been, that's been kind of my thing. No, it's science. Because you cannot go to any area in science where if you now take this different worldview and say consciousness is part of the game, and then you mm -hmm. say, okay, where are you measuring consciousness in your experiment? Social scientists, where are you measuring it? Well, are we... Hello? Angel, are you still there? Yeah, I can hear you. Can you hear me? Yeah, it's, now it's the interference that was in the beginning of the show. Uh, uh, let's just do a callback. We'll try it again. It's not common to have all these interruptions. It's very puzzling. Well, that, that you, last one was really strange, the, the disconnect. I've, I've really never had that either. <laughs> but you've heard me good all the time? You've been perfect the whole time. Okay. <laughs> Weird. Anyway, do you remember your thoughts? Um, well, I think we're talking about the Global Consciousness Project. Right. Is, um, is that those guys who measured a huge peak in emotions at 9-11 right before it hit? Yes. You know anything about that? That's yes. those people. That's the, <laughs> that's the Global stuff. Consciousness Project. And you kind of just tipped off the really crazy thing before, before it happened. They measured it. Right. Yeah, because that belongs to the story. Yeah. Otherwise, it wouldn't be that surprising that we read in the media what happens. We see what happens, and then we, but it happened right before. So yeah, pre precognition and you know all that. Correct. And uh, 
So I, I think I, I pretty much summed it up in, in saying that it's something, to your point that, that you made earlier, is that you cannot minimize this huge question of whether consciousness is impacting our physical world, if, is, is interacting with our physical world. And here's another experiment that resoundingly says yes. It might only be small in the way we've measured it in this experiment, but it, it, it is happening. And that destroys materialism. And I guess the last point I was just making is that I think that impacts just about every area of science. You go into biology, okay, mm. whatever you're measuring, how did you factor in consciousness? Well, we didn't factor in consciousness. That doesn't affect it. Yep, you have to put an asterisk by everything you just did. Okay, where are we going to move? We're going to move over here to physics. Yep, have to put an asterisk by all your work. Uh, mm. Medicine, chemistry. Oh, every experiment. Well, we don't know if consciousness, have to put a little asterisk there. It probably didn't affect it, but consciousness is at the core of everything. So yeah. it's maybe I'm exaggerating the point to make a point, but still, if you really understand the implications of consciousness impacting, affecting our physical world, all of science now has to be reexamined. Yeah, and they, in medicine, they call it placebo. They use reductionists. Exactly. When they can't keep it away, they use reductionist uh, notions to... to it's sleight of hand, right? Exactly. So, yeah. No, I, I see. I've, I've always been convinced that from my esoteric background that it is consciousness, but you need to know how you do it. It's not enough to just sit and wish stuff. So if enough people knew how to influence and they willed it, that's a political force, man. That's a political force. But That's a good one. Uh, time. We need to move a little away from this funny, more conspiratorial or political aspect and go back to the core issues. Sure. Um, you know, this claim, extraordinary claims, demands extraordinary evidence. You, you raised that many times in your excellent shows. And uh, they buy this as this is one of their mantras in the cult of scientism. But in actual fact... Like you've pointed out, evidence is enough. Evidence, uh, because what's an extraordinary claim exactly. to, uh, to, to, a, to a Buddhist? It's an extraordinary claim that there's no consciousness, that we're robots. You need to provide an extraordinary evidence. What is extraordinary evidence? Either something is proven and it's true. Yes. Or it's debunked, uh, falsified, and it's not true. So, so they, they are moving the goalpost. But you said something beautiful in, in one of your shows. You quote to someone, and that is that no extraordinary claims demand extraordinary research. <laughs> well, you, you know, the funny thing about the extraordinary claims recording extraordinary proof is you could hardly come up with a less scientific statement if you yeah. tried. It is the epitome of anti-science <laughs> because... <laughs> The whole scientific enterprise was designed around the idea that, okay, look, we all have biases. We understand that. Let's try and get our biases out of here so that we can figure out what's really going on. Well, all this does is reintroduce the bias, right? We're going to say, mm. okay, well, let's do the work. Let's have the data. Let's have the results. And then let's have someone, a meta, a meta controller on top say, no, 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 no. That's extraordinary. That claim that you're making is extraordinary. You need more evidence for that one. Oh, you need less evidence for that. That's not. This is this is the whole thing. This is why we designed the scientific method. That's why we have peer review. That's why we have journals and 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 all that stuff. Is because yeah. 
we don't want someone from the outside saying this is extraordinary. This isn't extraordinary. It's it's it would be more funny if it wasn't so tragic. But uh, uh, you said peer review, and maybe we'll explore this more in part two. This notion of science versus scientism, because I see a corruption of science by invalidating the 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 few tools they have to to try to be right. an effective truth right. seeker. <laughs> and, and ideology is one thing. Uh, commercialization is another thing. Very good. And then you have this power thing that we have discussed. So all those three collude, consciously or unconsciously. And when they can take over institutions that use uh, that they own the means of the publications, uh, they determine who can can uh, peer review and uh, you had an excellent discussion and I think uh, if he's not too old or, or I, I want to have him on you had a discussion with I forgot his name but he's the one who you talked about AIDS Henry Bauer Dr. Yeah. Henry Bauer from yeah. Virginia Tech yeah he talked about a science court and my first yes. reaction to that was negative because I was, oh my god now they're going to determine it like lawyers truth right yes. but his points when he elaborated on it I, I kind of get his point because the other tools we have have broken down yes what do you think how can we resolve and salvage the excellent method of truth which is the scientific method well I think that's a big question I think we should probably leave it for part two. But what I will hint at and say is that I think the answer is more in what we were just talking about, because I think the revolution, the information explosion that you're a part of with your show and I'm trying to be a part of with my show is extremely liberating for people. The good news mm -hmm. is it's out there. The information is out there like never before. Access to the information is out there like never before. I think we can just do an end run on all these silly institutions and point people to the information and the smart people will figure it out on their own. And then we can continue to support the people who really have the means and the desire to do the real, to do the real research. But that means we, you're giving up on the scientific, the academic institutions then. It has to be in the fruit, out, out there in the open, in the open world. Well, it, it's kind of like when you were talking about uh, media, mainstream media. Yeah. Well, you can mm. give up on mainstream media or you cannot give up on mainstream media. It's kind of irrelevant because they're dead. Good point. They're dead whether you want them to be dead or not. They're just dead. People are getting their information from this long tail you know, stream of different sources, they're never going back to the way that it is. I think the same is true with science. And I think you yeah. brought up a great point about commercialization. There'll still be commercial interest. And as, that mm. was, that's Dr. Henry Bauer's point is that it becomes kind of a, a, a cyclical downspin with the commercialism because commercialism snuffs out more and more of the real kind of genuine research. So at the end of the day, all you wind up with is commercial, commercial real estate, commercial uh, science, yeah. promoting one drug or promoting one technology, all the rest of that. So mm. I think, again, the analogy to media, it's like, whether you want newspapers, you know, do you care if newspapers stick around or not? doesn't matter if you care, they're gone. Yeah. No, I see your point. It's an excellent point. I mean, science isn't dependent on corporation or state-sponsored institutions there's a lot of institutions you mentioned a few 
consciousness experiment and, and the Bauer he represented some uh, kind of uh, academic uh, group too yeah. so there's a lot of by the way before we, we t- go to break here we'll get back to all that stuff in part two and uh, I've been talking a lot now in part one but we, we kind of agreed to have a free discussion like uh, two friends discussing this right but in part yeah, two yeah. I want to go deeper into your excellent book. Well, I, I hope in part two we do more of the same because I, I think that you are uh, mining some very important territory that is part of my story. So, heck, I better be sure. learning out of this thing. I can't, you know, if I'm not learning, oh, yeah. I'm not having fun. So, right, no, right. let's just do it again. Repeat. I'd love to. It's been so fun. So let's do yeah, it Yeah, but, but all the t- topics in your book, there's so much uh, gold there people to check out and and also if you're not aware of alex's show skeptical yet you better check it uh one last question and we, we take the break why do you call it skeptical you know it's one of those funny almost too strange stories but my ethnic background i, I is greek greek orthodox that's why i was great raised even though i was born in chicago and only half my family is is greek but still there was a strong cultural connection so mm. When I first got into this, I was interested in examining the skeptical position, and I thought I was kind of going to be a, a somewhat of a counterweight to the skeptical position. So I looked up, you know, the origin of skeptico of skeptics, and it's this group of Greek philosophers, and it was called skeptikos in the Greek. Mm. And uh, later, so I just latched onto the name. I found the name, and I just go with it. And it wasn't until years later that I really appreciated what they were all about. They were all about always asking the next question and resisting the urge to come to a firm conclusion, but always be in that mode of questioning. I thought, oh, my gosh, I am being directed here because that is (laughs) that is how I should go. Whether I go that way or not, that should be my my directive. Uh, Yeah, not yours. I mean, share it, man. That's that should be everybody's and especially science that is the cradle of science right yes yes Mm -hmm. questions yeah so So we have more questions questions. and when we come back in part two we will blow your mind with even more and deeper questions good stay tuned all of our files are free and will remain free. If you like the show, you can show support by donating $1 to help with expenses. Just use the PayPal link on our website, YouTube channel, or Facebook page. Thanks. Welcome back to part two of this interesting show we're having with Mr. Skeptical himself, Alex Sakiris. Did I say that name right, Alex? Very nice. (laughs) Okay. Uh, We have a very interesting chat here today about uh, what we could call the pseudo-skeptics, the debunkers, the atheists. But I want to qualify something I I said about uh, them in the name of nuance. Like you know, of course, Alex, but in case anyone misunderstands, it's not that I have anything against, or we, I guess I could speak for you too, that we have nothing against the philosophical atheism in itself. It's this, it's this derailment, it's this fundamentalism. Uh, in fact, I want to, I want to give a, a shout out to one guy that I think is, 
he's brilliant and I think he's pretty sincere too. Uh, because for some reason, you know, there's a lot of magicians who are skeptics. You mentioned Randy. But do you know who Darren Brown is? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, and I, I perceive him as sincere. And he's had uh, some very interesting programs where he's explored the borderline between, uh, you know, psychology, the mind, and uh, powers like faith healing uh, and... Uh, well, he's tried to debunk them, but also like um, uh, placebo effect. He's proven that you can hypnotize people to kill, that the placebo effect is, is, is a real force that can heal. Uh -huh. And he's also been imitating some of the more classical uh, stuff like, uh, you know, psychics and uh, psychic surgery. And he, of course, in his mind, it's all mechanical. It's all cold reading it's all swindle or self-suggestion yeah but that's okay i mean he understands it like that he's not an academic he hasn't looked into the evidence but i think he's sincere because he treats people with respect he's not hateful he's trying to find solutions you can't say that about people like richard dawkins and uh, james randy they are they are not looking to solve they're not looking for discourse they're not looking for answers they are looking to embarrass, insult, smear, etc., and flee from any debate. Your thoughts? Oh, it's funny you should mention that because I have a lot of thoughts about that. I think Darren's work is is brilliant, and I think he's a super intelligent guy. There's just no doubt about it, and he has such a uh, an intellectual approach to his work. I, mm. I think it's very important work, just as you said. I can't help but feel in some ways that he's kind of misinterpreted his own work in that, like you say, he, he shows these amazing powers of mm. the mind, whatever the mind is, but then he tries to jam it back into this materialistic model that this is all created by the brain. And I think mm. for folks like you and I have, who have looked at the all this stuff more broadly say, you know what, that doesn't fit, Darren. So great. I'm glad you exposed how people can have religious experiences and they're maybe not tied to the things that they're tied to. But there's this whole realm out there of extended consciousness beyond the brain mm. that seems to exist from all these different data points that we look at, like parapsychology or near-death experience science or reincarnation science where – you know, real researchers at the University of Virginia have done their best to look at the phenomenon and figure out what it is. All this evidence points to extended consciousness, consciousness outside of the brain. So instead of Darren could be a tremendous asset and contributor to trying to figure out this broader yeah. mystery of consciousness. And what's always a little frustrating to me is he gets to the point of revealing all this amazing stuff and then seems content to pack it back into this crazy model that, well, there it is. It's all in your brain, folks. Yeah, he, he really does. I, I've been thinking the same thing because some of the quote-unquote tricks he does, there are other magicians that, that uh, knows them too. And the secret, uh, they, they do use perception and body as a part of it but a part of it is actually um well there's a word called suggestion but it, a right. part of it is it's a, it's a, it's a intuition in a way um and they freely admit it but they think that 
it's a subconscious who has this magical ability to pick up everything and, and to, to a certain extent but I think they are they're not taking into account that there may be a telepathic factor too well there, we know there almost to, there almost has to be I mean if we yeah. deconstruct that philosophically and again we're talking about this issue of consciousness consciousness and we have to define what consciousness is. Consciousness is that little voice inside your head. And like I always say, you know, for people is just stop, clear your mind and say hello inside your brain without saying it out loud. Say hello. Did you hear that? Well, yes, you heard that. That is an awareness of you being aware. And that is the essence of consciousness. No one can deny that. So then the question becomes, what is the nature of consciousness? Is consciousness purely a byproduct of your brain? Is Are your neurons firing in such a way to kind of create this grand illusion? Or is there something more? That's the question. Mm. What's interesting is if we go back philosophically, even just 20 years, because we keep talking about these new atheists, of which Darren Brown, as brilliant as he is, has closely associated himself with these people. Their philosophical basis for explaining consciousness is that consciousness is an illusion. And by that, they mean that you have the appearance inside of yourself you have the perception that they're really that you're really hearing something but you're not really hearing something that consciousness is an illusion mm. now let me persist with this a little bit further because with that with that assertion that they've made some things go along with that that have now been proven to be not true in the last 20 years. Like one of the things that goes along with the purely materialistic consciousness is just an illusion would be the assertion that therefore consciousness can do no real work, right? So if it's an mm. illusion, it can't really do anything. You might see a mirage out on the desert and it looks like there's flowing water, that's an illusion. If you get there and there's really water there, well, then that's not an illusion. Whatever it was before, you're drinking the water. That's not an illusion. Mm. If consciousness can really do anything, then it's not an illusion. So what we've discovered over and over again in the last 20 years is that, hey, consciousness really does something. What you were talking about earlier with the placebo effect, well, Wow, that's really real. But I'll give you another example that's even more to the point of our buddy Darren Brown there. Mm. They've done experiments at Harvard University. And it was an attempt to understand hypnosis and what's really going on with hypnosis. And what they did mm. is they made people colorblind while they were under hypnosis. So uh, hypnotic suggestion, you're colorblind. Mm -hmm. Lo and behold, people are colorblind. But what they found that was even more interesting. So, Al, they actually did fMRIs. And, What's that? Well, they actually did an fMRI. They looked at brain activity and they found that... E EG or what's it called? Well, you know, like an MRI where they shoot... Uh, right. They take a picture of brain. Well, an yeah. fMRI is a functional MRI. So all, all the, the pretty pictures you see of brains uh, where they have the colored kind of thing, those are all fMRIs. Mm. 
it's just a technology for measuring activity in the brain. Get it. So through various means, not just through fMRI, sure. they, they wanted to see whether or not how, how this was being created. And what they found is that these subjects who were given the suggestion to be colorblind actually made themselves colorblind. They turned yeah. off the mechanism in their optic nerve and the cones and all that stuff that we learned about and forgot. They made themselves colorblind. Yeah. And, so, and just to follow up quickly and you continue, okay. Darren, in one of his shows, the last one called Miracle, he actually made a heavily nearsighted woman, uh, physically nearsighted. And, you know, if it was just hypnosis and she was imagining that she could see properly... That wouldn't do it. So he made her read letters that she's not supposed to read with, with her eye level. So he kind of reversed. He did the same thing as in that experiment, but the reverse thing. He made her see better. Right. And it had physical evidence. But still, he rationalizes it, right? Right. It's, he, he doesn't go into that philosophical um, consequence of what's going on there. Exactly. Exactly, Al. Because it's a subtle shift now to say, well, well, wait a minute. If my consciousness can actually affect now the physical structure of the brain, then we kind of have a chicken in the egg problem when we start yes. coming to consciousness, right? Which comes first? the thought or the physical structure of the brain. You know, a guy who, who really kind of, I think, took this a huge step forward is a guy from U University of uh, Los Angeles, University of California, Los Angeles, UCLA. And uh, his name is Dr. Jeffrey Schwartz. And he's one of the worldwide recognized leaders on OCD, you know, obsessive compulsive mm. disorder. Right. You know, where they have to knock on the door three times and do all these things before they open it up and they just feel compelled to do it. Rituals. Mm. So Dr. Schwartz is both a sufferer of OCD and a researcher of OCD. He's highly competent. He's a brilliant, brilliant man. So he sought. Like a beautiful mind thing. He was motivated by his kind own of, kind uh, ailment. Of, kind yeah. of. <laughs> so he was motivated to figure out what's going on here. Sure. And what he found is a physical uh, connection in the brain. A physical, I was going to say defect, but then that kind of turns people off. But a physical yeah. abnormality in the brain connected to this condition. Mm -hmm. So what he then tried to do and showed is that through mindfulness meditation, okay, meditation, thinking about thinking, people could uh, reverse or alleviate this condition in their brain. And he, again, we go back to the... FMRI pictures of their brain, you could mm. physically see the difference in the brain. So now roll that all the way back to our friend, Charles Darwin. Mm. What are the causes for evolution? Well, they're either environment or it's mutation, right? Those are the mm. only two things. Either something happens in our environment and we're starved out of water and we learn to adapt and grow hot, longer necks to reach the higher trees, or there's some kind of genetic mutation that changes us. Hey, wait a minute. Dr. Schwartz now has introduced something else. Apparently, thinking about thinking, this meditation process 
can change the physical structure of the brain. And it's been published in all mainstream, uh, at least here in Norway, in all mainstream science journals. It's like, it's not a discussion. Even the debunkers and the skeptics have to accept it. Exactly. But that's okay for them because they can still push God or spirit out of it, they think. So they accept it begrudgingly. This is another shut up and calculate moment, right? Exactly. <laughs> so here's, here's the evidence and everyone says, oh, okay, that's really interesting. Let's move on. Instead of saying, yeah. whoa, 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 stop everything. We just had a major philosophical shift here. The whole earth has changed now because we're saying mm. consciousness can do work. Therefore, consciousness is not an illusion. Therefore, this idea that mind equals brain, that no longer fits. We don't know what's mm. going on, but... But instead, what we do is say, oh, okay, they discovered something else about hypnotism or placebo effect or meditation. Instead of really wrestling with the philosophical yeah. implications of it. Yeah, it, it is indeed mind over matter. But Plato was right and Aristoteles was wrong. You know, Plato saying uh, the ideas is the causal and, and Aristoteles saying that, no, they are influenced by the surroundings. But both of them agreed that there is a back and forth. What's it called in English? It's a mutual influence. Uh-huh. Um, forgot the term right now, but... They were just disagreeing about which one is the strongest, but it's obvious that consciousness, if it is applied, is the causal uh, force of those two. But when people are (laughs) unconscious about it, when we are, when the consciousness buys into the narrative that it has no force, Uh when people are in their own mental prison, they won't see that many uh, manifestations of that, d- despite all the self-help books and despite all the yes. science. So uh, this is what it boils down to. But you had a guest on your show that put it brilliantly. I forgot his name, but it's the guy who said that if we were biological robots, then we wouldn't have notions like a state or borders or, you know, the nation state or, right. or you, you know, to which interview I'm referring? Yes, you do. Uh, I, I do. It's going to take me just a second to um, to recall. Because all those are, are creations of the consciousness that you can see from space, a nation. You can see a church, a religion. These are concepts that are mentally created, but they are so real. If you look at the discourse today, let's say America, right? Yes. It's so much about the political realities that are all taking place in our consciousness that have real-life consequences, of course. Terrific. But we are not discussing nature phenomenon. We're not discussing what uh, robots would <laughs> relate to. Right. And you know, the guest I think you're referring to is uh, Dr. Alexander Went. That may be it, yeah. Brilliant guy, political science guy, who then ventured into the consciousness thing. Yeah. And back to the original theme that you contacted me on, and we have so much fun talking about all this other stuff. Mm. But one of the original themes you wanted to talk about was science and the kind of corruption of science in, in different ways. And mm. so here's what Dr. Alexander went from Ohio State University. He's a German uh, guy, but he's a professor at a U.S. institution, very highly regarded U.S. institution. And he's a brilliant guy. He's highly acclaimed for his work in political science. But what he points out is he says, hey, look at political science. It is 
assuming more or less this kind of mind equals brain silliness. Mm. He goes, but look at, again, like you and I are talking about, look at the philosophical assumptions we're making in political science. We're assuming that people have free will. We're assuming, mm. which goes against the mind equals brain, right? If your mind mm. equals brain, you don't have free will. You're just acting like a biological robot. And his point is, okay, but all of the assumptions we're really making about states, about state drive, about that they have a will, that they're active agents in change or in doing something. So he says, we have no problem when we say collectively a, a, a political state having that kind of free will. Yeah. But how does that fit with this other goofiness we're having when we insist that, oh, any individual doesn't have free will? And he's just pointing out the contradiction. And I think he makes a great point about forcing the hand, say, well, one way or another, if you want to push the biological robot model, then you got to then it then it goes all the way up to the largest state or political system. And if you want to give up on that, then you have to deal with the fact that there's this contradiction with what science is saying. I thought it was a brilliant argument. Oh, yeah, indeed. No, I think um, uh, as a temporary conclusion to, to why we're kept in this materialist prison um, that's slowly cracking, fortunately, is I think it's a sum factor of... If we take a step back and we observe it uh, with detachment, and we've talked about this today, yes. we see that there's a coalition of gatekeeping interests that has to be overcome. Uh, first, you have the obvious factor that you discussed with, um, oh, you told me the name, uh, the, the one with the science court. What's his name again? Dr. Henry Bauer. Yeah. And, and you should listen to that interview on Skeptical People. He beautifully puts it out how um, you have this, uh, you have commercial interests, you have the corporate takeover of science. Yes. I mean, who's financing what's going on now? It's all about, can we use this? People imagine that science is like Einstein's day, like a free thinker, like a brilliant, lonely genius. That era is gone. It's just ants on the assembly line. And uh, so he, he shows that side of academia. So that's a powerful interest. The money determines everything. Exactly. And then you have the fact that everyone, not just skeptics and atheists, have um, to some degree emotional attachment to their paradigm. It's not easy for many people to change their paradigm. And so when you have invested uh, 20 years, let's say, of, of uh, work or studies or whatever, when you have a culture you identify with, like the materialists have the, some kind of a, a culture, when you set your mind upon these habits of thought patterns, and then you have ideology in addition... <laughs> And if we are right that there are even bigger forces in play here, that there is some kind of interest that has to do with power to keep people in check, like like the Catholic Church did, like every power player in history have have done, tried to control the narrative, control how people think about things, then it's, it seems uh, amazing that we can even overcome this mountain of, uh, this wall, actually. But it is uh, slowly cracking. Isn't it? Well, uh, let me, despite everything, I mean, brilliantly said. 
Truly, truly. So let me recap that a little bit and add a couple of points to it. So you said that this Dr. Henry Bauer, who was at university uh, or Virginia Tech University in the United States, Professor Emeritus was just brilliant guy. And he got interested later on in his career about the science of science, you know, looking really more broadly at science and what it's doing. And kind of like Sheldrake, wouldn't you say? Well, Sheldrake is more, Sheldrake kind of got pulled into that, but Sheldrake always pulls things back to his biology background. If you listen to Sheldrake, Sheldrake's mm. gotten pulled into the debates about science and the science delusion, but where he really likes to stay is in the biology, which he should because he's a brilliant biologist. Henry Bauer is more kind of this big thinker, general thinker about the nature of science. So, mm. you know, to your first point, yeah, money, we all know money and corporate interests drive science. But what I learned from, from Bauer that really kind of helped me understand it, he said, you, you have to look at what's happened for the last 75 years. He goes, in the 1950s, there was this tremendous influx of money towards science. So they just threw all this money at the universities and said, okay, great. You know, we're roaring now. Go figure mm. everything out. And it created a lot of grants and it created a lot of slots for professors and the money was free flowing. Now, mm. what happened in the 70s, 80s, 90s? Well, that money started to tighten up, just pure economics. As the money tightens up, as with any market, what happens? Do people rapidly kind of change direction in terms of what they're going to choose as their career? No, the, this big machine that's created keeps going. So we keep cranking out the PhDs and the researchers and all the rest of that. But when they go out into the job market and they look for jobs, there's fewer and fewer opportunities. So this puts more pressure on the institutions and the individuals. It's more people fighting for less money. Yeah. What that creates is the perfect opportunity for the corporate interest that was always there, but they suddenly have a lot more power, right? Because if I'm mm. out there and I'm throwing around my $100,000 grant, well, back in the 50s, everyone's snubbing their nose at me and saying, hey, to heck with your money. I can go get this free money from the government, and it doesn't have any strings attached. But yeah. now as the market tightens, I look around and go, ah, oh, yeah, that isn't so bad. Uh, yeah, tell me again what you wanted me to do for that $100,000. So that it, the system itself becomes corrupt because there's these market forces in play. Yeah. And then what happens is that becomes a vicious cycle. Because once I've prostituted myself for the corporation and done the work for Monsanto, I'm in their pocket. And the next time around, I'm going to do it again and again. And when they get the benefit of it, then they go back to their interests, their board members, their whoever, and say, hey, that worked. It worked at $100,000. Next year, we're going to do a million and we're going to get this done. And then they, you know, so you can see how the whole yeah. cycle happens. That was Bauer's insight. And I think it's brilliant. I think it's undeniable. Anyone who denies that is just kind of, I don't know what game they're playing. Well, they're not in this world. But the other thing, you, <clears throat> you said two other things that I want to touch on because they're interesting. Mm -hmm. One is the emotional attachment and the cognitive dissonance that people have. And to me, yeah. this is an amazing, amazing force. And someone like you and someone like me and probably a lot of your listeners, and I know a lot of my listeners, are less susceptible to this than 
a lot of other people are. I mean, mm. my beliefs are fluid. You show me the data on just about anything, and I'm all ears. And I might not jump on your side initially, but I'm going to be pretty persuaded if I see good, solid evidence. As we yeah, know, yeah, and I have to say that comes very good uh, through in your shows. You're not dogmatic at all. You're sincerely trying to explore this with these people that you have on. Well, that's that's nice of you to say. I, I I've found that. And that's why, to a certain extent, I'm drawn to conspiracies, even though a lot of conspiracies turn out not to be true. What I've found in general is that people who are open to exploring those conspiracies, people who don't immediately shut down when you say, hey, maybe 9-11 was an inside job. Maybe the war on terror is fake. Maybe the war on drugs is fake. People who don't immediately recoil and go, oh, my God, how can you say that? You're, you know, those are people that in general I find to be not as easily influenced, not as easily brainwashed by cults or religions and all this other crazy stuff. What Bauer is saying about the institution of science is that it becomes this self-perpetuating thing where you wind up with people who are actually more closed-minded than you would expect because yeah. the whole basis, again, you know, like we talked about real briefly, the, this claim that in science, extraordinary claims require extraordinary proof. Yeah. And what, what I said is, gee, you can't say a more unscientific statement because the whole enterprise of science is wrapped up in this idea that, hey, there is cognitive bias, right? So we go into it knowing that I'm, I'm going to be prejudiced. Me, I'm going to probably be prejudiced about things. I'm going to have biases. I'm going to have beliefs that I can't easily get past. So we're going to develop this system called science that removes me from making subjective biased errors. And I'm going to try and apply these rules strictly so that I can avoid those. Well, that's then that is completely countermanded by this idea of extraordinary claims, extraordinary proof, because then we're back mm -hmm. to subjectively someone saying what's extraordinary claim and what's extraordinary proof. It's the opposite of what we want to do in science. And the same goes for this emotional attachment. That when we see folks who are emotionally attached to certain beliefs in science, they are the, the antithesis of what science is about. Mm -hmm. Science is a process. It's not a belief system. Um, And, and then you, you quite nicely added the third element to that. So if you take that mess that science is in, and then you layer on top of it the possibility that the culture makers, the control element, the people who are there, we can't deny that. We can talk well, about... Of course, there's people who have influence, yes. It, right. For whatever reason, by whatever means. And we can debate how much influence they have and where that influence is exercised, mm. but we cannot deny the fact that there are folks who want to influence that process. So if you layer mm. that on top of the whole thing, you see how we're really up against it in terms of looking to science to really give us a lot of guidance on where we should go. And it's still our best bet. Yeah, yeah. I think the big disagreement with the conventional uh, thinking people is that they expect that people in power and people with influence have everyone's best interest in mind. I think that's the problem. They <laughs> they don't acknowledge that there may be agendas that would be uh, negative or, dare I even say, evil, quote-unquote. I mean, uh, like, was it Hitler? One of those Nazi guys said that 
you have to tell a big lie because small lies people tell themselves so that they will see through but the bigger the lie the easier it is to get away with it yeah i don't so they they kind of project uh, they they are kept down in this authoritarian thinking uh, it's like parents oh how can you criticize our parents they want the best for us Uh, so they're r- really not independent thinkers. They're really immature. They're still at that level where they have blind faith in other people or in... I, I mean, it's the same thing as if you have blind faith in Jesus or God or whatever. They don't see that they are following the same religious or faith-based mechanisms that the people they love to criticize. And I think since atheism and, and pseudo-skepticism uh, become now, they've been fighting so long against the obvious bad guys like dogma in religion that they become who they fight uh, they took on religious fundamentalism and stuff like that and it has influenced their mode of thinking because if you look at let's say i mean the, the pseudo-skeptics and the debunkers has been one of the forefronts of the islamophobia if i can use that word and they try to paint every muslim like a fundamentalist they deliberately don't want to see nuance And uh, that's because they agree with each other. Uh, Richard Dawkins, uh, Sam Harris, they, their understanding of religion is the same literalism understanding that the fundamentalisms have. Yeah. So they have a mutual interest. If you are Sufi or agnostic or you come in nuances, you come in philosophy, or if you're on the science part, if you're like a consciousness explorer, whatever, it's a threat to their paradigm. They need to keep it tidy, simple, black and white. There's no shades here. And that be, that means that the real enemy isn't like an Islamist. Islamist, just for those in the audience who doesn't know, the, the difference between a Muslim and an Islamist is Islamism is fundamentalism. That's political Islam. It's, it's radical Islam, as you say, in America. Got it. But the difference between that or an evangelist, I, I say, and an atheist is really just uh, the contents of the paradigm. The mechanisms, the, the way to perceive the world is simpleton. So the real threat is people like you and me, Alex, Or anyone who tries to explore the, the nuances in between. You see what I mean? I do. It, it gets tricky, though, because a lot of the atheist stuff is legitimate reaction against the way things have been for a long time with religion that ain't right. Yeah. You know, It ain't right mm. that the church, the Christian church, has dominated our culture the way that it is, uh, based on a bunch of fairy tales, misrepresentations, and power plays in its own right. I mean, that's what that whole thing was about. Um, mm. At the same time, this gets into the occult and the esoteric. What are you going to do with the spiritual experience then? What are you going to mm. do? You're just going to factor that out? You're just going to say that doesn't somehow exist or isn't, isn't part of it? I don't know how you do that. Yeah, it's a baby in the bathwater. Well, I don't know if it's the baby in the bathwater, but it's as you said it's more complex thinking that I think people try and avoid. They want to simplify it. It's this or that, you know, it's... Uh, yeah, yeah, but my point is when they criticize the legitimate things, that's the bathwater, right? And the, then they also throw out the baby, which is that there's something there. But you have to have complex thinking to acknowledge that. But it gets even more tricky than that, because if you look at 
like, so here we are, we're beating up on the atheists and the materialists, right? Good. High and time. to a certain extent, that's a, uh, the, the, that's an easy game too. So we're criticizing them for picking on easy targets. You know, they're going to pull out a fundamentalist Christian and tear him up and show how stupid his belief system is. We all get that. Mm. Or a fundamentalist mm. Islamist. And, you know, we all get that. But we're kind of playing the same game a little bit when we pull out the dogmatic atheist and, and say that. Because when we mm-hmm. go and look at parapsychology, right? So we go look at people who've looked at ESP and we looked at psi and telepathy and precognition and all that cool stuff. Sure. There's a lot of atheists. It's dominated by atheists. So you're like... The, the research, you mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's so, so, mm. And I've talked to a bunch of them. And you want to stop and go, pause for a minute and go... What the hell are you doing? You, you've, you've uncovered the data and you've misinterpreted it now because you want to completely ignore the spiritual implications. You know, the same thing is going on with near-death experience research, right? Okay, so they're pulling a Darren Brown then. Exactly, exactly. Mm. And, 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 mm. and this is not a conscious thing. Well, it, no. it's conscious in a couple ways, but no, for the most part, it's not conscious. It's one, mm. they want to be accepted into the little science club. And they know mm. they can't go the spiritual route and, and get acceptance. Yeah, but then secretly they can harbor all their ideas that they don't mention. Maybe, maybe secretly. But I mean, I was going to say, even in the near-death experience research, you look at that research and they want to talk about veridical out-of-body experience. And, you know, they'll talk about the cause of death and the amount of oxygen in the blood and all this. Hey, well, once we get past all that, can we talk about the experiences these people have? Because the, even if we analyze it scientifically, like my, my friend and the researcher I admire a lot, near-death experience researcher, Dr. Jeffrey Long, who is uh, just like, you know, Penn Van Lommel and the rest of these guys, like Sam Parnia, they're doctors. They just stumbled across this stuff, mm. and then they were forced to kind of, because of their, their curious scientists as well as doctors said, I got to look into this. So Jeff Long is a radiation oncologist, a cancer doctor, and he's dealing with a lot of dying people. He stumbles across the near-death experience research. He winds up compiling the largest database of medically reviewed near-death experience cases in the world. He has over 2,000 of them. Mm. So he starts analyzing those in a very scientific way with a complicated survey that cross-checks against Uh, mistakes in, in the way that medical surveys do. Medical surveys are a very important part of medical science. But his conclusion comes a lot closer to the stuff that I think we should be talking about, which is these people are having transcendent spiritual experiences. Their life is changed. Yeah. They see these beings that are all loving. They change their whole orientation about death, about meaning, about all this stuff. Mm. But you you rarely get that, I think, from the near-death experience science. Instead, it becomes this very sanitized kind of academic medical discussion about brain and, and that kind of stuff. Mm. And not that it's, I don't want to play that too hard because it's still there. But for the most part, they just don't want to go there. And they're kind of leaving the bulk of the data. And again, just kind of mm. casting it aside and say, let's just push this direction because we have less pushback on just talking about the technical medical stuff. Yeah. Now, uh, to your point about they're an easy target uh, for, you know, people like our listeners and us. The, yeah, but 
we need to do it because that's not the daily bashing going on. The daily bashing is against primitive uh, religion. Uh, but the, the, the fundamentalists, the scientism adherers, they haven't gotten their due. So someone has to start criticizing them. It's a dirty job, but someone's got to do it, right? So, <laughs> yeah. so I, I think it's highly deserved for people like Sheldrake to take them on, for people like Bauer. Um, so, but I want to say one last point about that uh, before we move on to your book, and that is uh, about research. That I think one problem that you left out maybe in your discussion with Bauer, um. I can't recall if you touched upon it, but it's a very important factor to all these layers that is enclosing truth, and that is open research. There's hardly any open research anymore. You have the universities, of course, but um, if you really stumble upon something which is groundbreaking, it goes black, either because the corporations want to keep it to themselves, yeah, or because... The controllers, it's it, it politically explosive, it's military explosive. There's so many interests. Or oh, it goes against uh, the billion-dollar industry in, in big pharma or, or cancer or what have you. So if there was a complete open research, it would alter the situation a lot, I think. And I, I do recall Bauer or you made a point of that in your discussion that... Uh, I think Bauer said that that's that's a solution. You were you know you were agreeing about the grim state of affairs, but how can we change that? And openness is the new is the way to go. Um, yeah, and fortunately, the the tools and technology of the internet are making that more possible. Indeed, and that's really got to be our hope because if we hope to. Uh, kind of correct those institutions. I and mean, that's like turning the ocean liner. You know, you're just going to, it's going to take <laughs> yeah. a long damn time. What you see mm -hmm. happening now is more and more people doing open source science. It's all over the place. And yeah. because technology has advanced and the cost of this stuff has come down, people can do some pretty amazing stuff on their own, more or less. And, and that stuff's happening all over the place. You know, uh, Early on in our email exchange, I sent you, uh, I sent you some amazing work that's being done by a, a small group that's investigating low energy nuclear reaction, LEAR. And not that we want to get off on that tangent, although I think it's a really interesting technology. But what I found interesting is mm -hmm. here is a group of guys who just got together and said they're brilliant, brilliant people. I mean, if you watch their videos, you're like. I don't understand what he's saying, but it sounds good. But if, and if you look at their published work, you know, which they publish in an open source kind of way, they're doing real science. And in the case of uh, this is the Martin Fleischmann Memorial Project, if someone wanted to look that up. And uh, they got their research to a point where they were able to go and find a university lab in Europe who said, wow, you guys have really you're on to something here. Let's partner up. And we'll apply a little bit of our resources to the work that you've done, and let's see where we take it. That, to me, is the model going forward, is not to mm. expect science per se, institutional science to change, but just, hey, a lot of people are going to crowdsource stuff, are going to open yeah. source, get together, network on the internet, exchange YouTube videos, exchange science ideas through Skype and otherwise, and they're going to create some stuff 
And then maybe they'll entice some sanctioned science to join them. But I, I think that's our best hope. Yeah, no, it is, as long as we have a free internet, because right. new generations will grow up not watching TV, uh, but being very interactive. And if we can influence their, par uh, is it Kuhn who, who talked about the paradigm shift in science? Right. He didn't factor anything else than the naturally, the emotional thing, but because you have the commercial thing like we talked about and the power thing, but... When new academics grow up having have access to this open research that private institutions do or, or interest groups or, or individuals or whatever, mm -hmm. then it's a little harder to buy into the knowledge filtration as, as Dr. Cremo calls it. Knowledge filtration meaning then that in archaeology and anthropology you have this phenomenon that if they find evidence that points against the paradigm that they are brought up to they just put the evidence away because it has to be something wrong about it not knowing that the total amount of evidence of anomalies is now bigger than the total amount of evidence maintaining the official view Mm -hmm. Right, because mm -hmm. that was what happens, and that doesn't just happen in in that field. It happens in every field, but in some fields, like the hard sciences, that's very hard. There, they have to do the shut up and calculate thing, like in quantum physics. You can't just disregard evidence in quantum physics, but you can disregard the consequences of it, if you see what I mean. Mm -hmm. Yes, that's a good way to put it. Yeah. So, so that's uh, that's a hope. I totally agree. Should we go over to your book? Because it's a very smooth transition, because this is what your book is about to, to some extent. Sure, sure. Yeah, the first thing I want to say is that I actually take issue with your title. <laughs> I think the I, I think it should be why scientism is wrong. And, and we did touch upon this, but the, my point is, if we if we give them that, we actually concede that they actually hijack science. If we call this unscientific materialism science, if we say that, yeah, okay, why science is wrong about almost everything, when it's really not the neutral method that is wrong, because the method doesn't take parts, doesn't take sides. But it's the, all we've been talking about, it's the way they apply it, the way they interpret it, uh, the way they try to put it into the box. That's really scientism. So would you just start telling us a few words about why you choose that very provocative, explosive title, Why Science is Wrong About Almost Everything. Well, it, it's funny because I always wind up talking about this a lot. And uh, <laughs> I, have to defend, I have to defend my title because yeah, sure. I, I think that implicit in what you're saying is the idea that science has been hijacked. When you get into the first couple pages of my book, I modify science to say science as we know it, right? Science mm. as we know it. Science as we know it is wrong about almost everything because, and for folks who aren't familiar with the book, because we've completely misunderstood consciousness. And like we're talking about here, we we're talking about earlier, if you factor in consciousness and if consciousness is somehow fundamental, and by that I mean matter isn't fundamental, but matter is created by consciousness, which is the implication for all of this, well then science as we know it needs fix-in. It doesn't really hold together in the same way that we thought it did because our whole idea of measuring, which is fundamental to science, that we can go out and measure measure the real world and report back on what it's doing, 
All that has to be re-examined because our measurements have never factored in this extended consciousness, which we now understand to be present. So the reason I say science is wrong about almost everything is because that's what the hell science is today. Science is what we understand it to be when we say science as we know it. So, well, I think we're talking about the title and, and, you know, this thing about words is kind of interesting because when you throw a title like why science is wrong and then people react and go, oh, my God, why would you say science is wrong? Look at my <laughs> iPhone right here. You know, and science As is if great. technology equals science. Yeah, right? that's and, and that's mistake. okay, too. But it's like, okay, I don't want to give a 20-minute dissertation on how science isn't really science and it's been corrupted by these, mm. you know, like we just did. We just gave that 20-minute dissertation. Yeah, so did. once you listen to that, then – Okay, let's let's talk about why science is wrong. But it, it, if they have corrupted science, then I am going to use the word as they've corrupted it. I'm not going to try and Quantify it. Uh, resuscitate or uh, resurrect science to the glory science that it should be, the, the pure process. I'm like, no. Ah, that's where we differ, because that's my agenda. Okay. Science has been prostituted. So the prostituted science is wrong yeah. about almost everything. Yeah, but I'm more of a warrior there. I want to win back. I'm, I'm trying to make those who disregard science realize that they don't own science, the materialists. If you go back to the classical scientist notion of of, um, before the 50s, they would say openly, they would say that, look, science is dependent, the scientific method is dependent on certain tools, and those tools are of the physical world. So science can't really say, that's what I thought back then at least, we, we can't really say that much about the religious area, the religious questions, uh, the big questions. We can't deny it, we can't uh, We can't falsify it, we can't verify it. So it's a fair game that, it was like neat and tidy. We're exploring the material world, the theologists, the philosophers, etc. are, are taking care of uh, the metaphysical world and, and everything is fine and we're not enemies. I think a lot of the problems comes when science is so well developed that it can start to cross over to matters of consciousness, matters of life force. And at the same time, what used to be more limited to the esoteric field, namely a scientific inquiry about the spiritual, is now reaching more and more mainstream. And what happens when those two lines crosses over is that the black and white people become scared out of their mind. You have uh, those materialist fundamentalists that hate that crossing over, and you have the religious fundamentalists that hates it. And then um, we get this result that they attack everyone in between. The religious people attack the nuances, the the intelligent, the more philosophical uh, religious, anti-dogmatism, anti-fundamentalist, and the materialist attacks the people among their own who who tries to cross over to, to the consciousness. So I want, and I'm naive, and maybe I want, maybe we'll never see that day, but I, I, I hope we can take back science and not let it be attached to the materialist view. Kind of like what Shelrek also says when, when he, he attacks the dogmas in science. He uses the scientific method against <laughs> the scientific institutions and the people working for it. 
And that's, that's why they attack him. Well, Al, you're more of an idealist. Yeah, yeah. You're more of an idealist. I'm more of an iconoclast, just tearing everything down. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I get that. But it's good that you got to, to explain that so people understand that you're not a science denier. <laughs> that one could maybe infer from a title like that. If they knew nothing else than the title, they would maybe think that. That that's that's okay. I mean, I'll take any any. I love the denier term. I'm a climate denier. I'm a science denier. I'm <laughs> all these deniers. Just pile it on. It's you're just making okay. my point uh, the way that I see it. You know, in terms yeah, of. But ironically, you're the real scientist with your uh, attitude. Well, I I'm I'm not a scientist, right? I mean, I'm just a guy who anyone uh, can be a scientist. Really, I was a business guy that kind of got done with that and said, hey, there, aren't we all? The, the thing that always challenged me is just like, hey, isn't everybody interested in this? Isn't everybody interested in the big picture question of who am I? Why am I here? To me, I just thought everybody, once they had the time and the opportunity to, that that's what they would want to investigate. So I'm always kind of surprised when people that isn't their primary interest. Yeah, but look, brother, you don't work as a scientist. Of course not. But Anyone can be a scientist. Science doesn't belong to a certain title or, or you have to have a white lab coat or all these naive imaginations of how stuff yes. goes. That's my point. Science is science. It was applied in ancient times. It's applied now. It, it changes. Uh, it is different types. But really, I don't, think, uh, I don't think we should give it to, especially not to the materialists, at least. I hear you. Because that's an ideology. That's a re religious view, basically. I, I definitely hear where you're coming from, and I, I, can't, I can't argue with that part of it, no. <laughs> but if you take a look at your book, it's kind of interesting because you, you have divided the chapters into, a, I mean, you have great titles like uh, uh, Wrong About Quantum Physics, If a Tree Falls, Wrong About Near-Death Experience, uh, wrong about consciousness, say hello, etc. And then you attach it to certain people, certain scientists, certain doctors. Is that like people from your show that you want to highlight who have done the research in the different fields you take on in your book? Because you do take on very many different fields of science, yes. especially science in the, in the twilight zone between the metaphysical and the physical. Well, I, I wish I could claim to be that systematic, but really what the show Skeptico was about for me from the beginning was kind of going out and trying to answer that question that I just said, who are we? Why are we here? And mm. I, I saw podcasting as a vehicle, as a trick, as a way in, as a way to kind of fool everybody. Because you can't call up Rupert Sheldrick and say, hey, Rupert, I just read your book. Would you mind answering a few questions? <laughs> you can, but you won't get a response. No. But if you, if you have a podcast and you can develop a little bit of a following for it, you can actually talk to these people. And hmm. so that's what hooked me in is I wanted the answers from the best scientists, the best researchers. And then what I did is I just kind of followed my Followed my curiosity, followed my nose towards, oh, what's this guy saying? Oh, where does that take me and where does that lead me? So parapsychology, where does that lead in terms of psi? Oh, that leads to reincarnation. Oh, interesting. That leads to near-death experience. Oh, that leads that leads to the esoteric and the and some of the occult stuff. Oh, yeah, interesting. They're, they're, hey, they're beaming the line again. You want to just do another phone call? Yeah. Let, yeah, let okay. me call you back. Yeah.
Let's see, where were we? Um, Are we clear now? Is it better? Much better. So, um, yeah, do you remember we were talking about the titles of your chapters and the people you... And then I think you were talking about the various the various different chapters and, and how those relate. And, and I was just kind of saying that really for me, it's been kind of this journey of just following things where they kind of naturally lead for me. I didn't have any systematic approach that I need to start with. Uh, mm. parapsychology and then look at precognition and then from there go to, you know, mediumship or after-death communication or any of that stuff. I just kind of did what seems to be the next logical thing in the sequence. So if people... Yeah, the journalistic approach to get to get to talk with these people about yeah, exactly. these things. I actually tried to get uh, Shellwreck on this series. How did you manage to... Oh, I, I don't know how you got Shellwreck to write the foreword, but kudos for that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I say that's quite a, a feat. Well, he was one of the first people I interviewed for the show way back 10 years ago. Oh. And so we developed... Oh, you'll be going for 10 years? Yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Can't stop. I'm a podcasting addict. <laughs> it's wonderful. Great. I've loved every minute of it, and I still love yeah. doing the shows, and I'm excited about all the new stuff. But we developed a, a, a friendship. I met him a couple times. I wow. uh, I actually back, again, I have been at this for a while, and at the beginning, when I got interested in his work, I was like, again, I took kind of a straightforward business approach. I go, oh, okay. No problem. You just need more research on this. Great. I'll help you. Uh, mm. I'll throw a little bit of money in the pot. And let me find a researcher here in the United States who's going to be interested in replicating your work. And this is, if people are not familiar with Rupert Sheldrick and uh, some of his work, he's a Cambridge biologist, and he's done some just amazingly simple, uh, at least in appearance, experiments that are revolutionary. So one of his experiments mm. that really caught my eye because – it's not only an important experiment, but it has that wow factor that people connect with, was this idea of dogs that know when their owners are coming home. Not just dogs, by the way, but uh, pets, yes. Dogs, cats, cats do it a lot too. Yeah, yeah. And you have the famous parrot footage. Have you seen that? Yes. Oh, the parrot thing is unbelievable. Mm, amazing. But this dog thing, if people haven't heard about it, is the idea that the name says it all. The title says it all, right? So some dogs seem to have this uncanny ability to know when their owners are coming home. And then, you know, people will go, yeah, well, that's because they come home at the same time. Well, no, I mean... <laughs> <laughs> Rupert Sheldrick is a Cambridge biologist. He thought about that uh, in the first 30 uh, seconds of looking at this, right? <laughs> so he's controlled for for time, for the variability of how long the trip lasts. So, you know, you leave your car, you don't always come back 10 minutes later. You know, that would be another thing that the dog would pick up on. He's controlled for the fact that the last mile, the dog might be hearing or smelling something or even two miles. He's controlled for all that. It's not easy, It's not hard really to control for all those things. And he still found unbelievably statistically significant results that some dogs seem to have some kind of attachment, telepathic to net, attachment to their owner that allows them to know essentially when their owners are coming home. And they get all excited and they go by the door more frequently and they do all this stuff. And you can read the research. I got really interested in the research and I said, Wow, this is great. Well, there's probably somebody who's going to be dying to do this research and replicate it. You know, naive. <laughs> so back to what we're saying there. Yeah. No, no. So actually, I found a good, pretty decent guy at the University of Florida 
here in the United States, who was mm. skeptical, but at least willing. If I threw a little bit of money his way, he was willing to give it a try. But he didn't really go far at all with it. You had to privately fund it? Oh, yes, yes. Jeez. Well, wow. there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, he's, <clears throat> again... Is everything wrong with it that, that we as individuals have to get the scientists to, to look into these groundbreaking matters? Well, well you can kind of look at it two ways. Mm. I mean, this is kind of how the world works, right? So, yeah, 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 yeah. you know, am I supposed to call this guy up and he's supposed to drop everything <laughs> and say, oh, wow, yeah, you know... No, that's not how the world works. No, but you have the peer review. I mean, if someone makes a claim, there should be extraordinary research. Well, we have to back this up. But but I guess we can go back to why the peer review has broken down too and the publication tools. But anyway, go on with your point. Well, so this is my education in that was was twofold. One was that this research, even though it's groundbreaking. And the work that Sheldrick has done has been groundbreaking, really establishes it as well as you'd need to establish it. My only hope was, let's blow this thing up so everybody knows about it kind of thing. Mm. And Sheldrick's done a good job of that too. I don't want to say that I was, but that was my hope. My hope he's was- He's very popular here in Norway. He's been in many times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's become very popular in the United States too. But you know, I still saw an opportunity, especially a few years ago, to kind of promote that and make that Make just good science, make good science more well-known. But the other thing that I ran into in that process that really drove me in a new direction is if anyone looks into Sheldrick's work, they're going to run across a guy named Dr. Richard Wiseman. Have you run across him? Yeah, he's this psychologist guy. I've run across him when it comes to the field of dating, you know, male, female, those things. But that doesn't require metaphysics, so... I guess he's okay there, but, but he's some kind of debunker too, isn't he? Yeah, total, totally bunker. And the interesting thing there is, again, I resist the term debunker. I resist the term skeptic because this guy, Richard Wiseman, is as mainstream science as you can get. Mm. A matter of fact, at least at some point not too long ago, and I don't know if he still does, but he held the title in the UK as the leading scientist for public education and awareness of science or some kind of pretentious title that he was the main guy for educating, you know, the UK public about science or some such nonsense. Mm. His work with Sheldrick was just despicable, just despicable, dishonest. I had Sheldrick on. We had, we hosted a debate on my show of Sheldrick and Wiseman and Sheldrick is a pretty nice guy, pretty even handed. Oh, very gentleman. Yeah. He says, I cannot explain the extent of his deceit. He's just completely lying about this stuff. Sheldrick Mm. did hundreds of trials with these dogs. Richard Wiseman came in, changed the protocol without consulting Sheldrick, who had set up all the equipment. You know, so the equipment you need for this experiment, you need a video camera to video cam to record the dog. And then you need hopefully a video camera to record the owner as they're going out and about, or at least some way of tracking where the owner is and all that. And they needed a couple yeah. cell phones. It's not much. Sheldrick set up the whole experiment. Wiseman comes in, runs four, runs the 
trial four times, changes the protocol. This is unbelievable in science. They said they were going to measure whether the dog was reacting by taking the total time the dog was away from the window or to the window. Wiseman does something totally different. He says, it's only if the dog stays at the window for two minutes do we count it. This is like a bizarre new rule that he's come up with. Changing the goalposts. Changing the goalposts in the middle of the experiment. And then he goes and publishes his result, his four-trial result, says he's debunked Sheldrick, says it's all, there's nothing to it, and I've proven it, and has all this kind of, he's an excellent writer, and he's an excellent communicator about science. He's just not a truthful guy. And that sends you down that whole path of what is going on here? Why is Agenda, obviously an agenda. I don't know. Confirmation. But look, uh, Weissman is a psychologist, isn't he? He's not a, really a scientist. Chelrick is a scientist. He's a biologist. Yes. And I find it so fascinating, Alex. I don't know if you've seen this pattern. But I'd say the majority of the materialists are really in the field of those who study matter. It's ironic that those who study the mind, like psychologists, tend to be materialists, whereas those who study matter, like physics, physicists, they tend to have a metaphysical view. I, I, I can't count how many people in astrophysics and quantum physics who personally have a paradigm closer to, let's say, Buddhism, Taoism, Pythagoreanism, stuff like that. Isn't that ironical that people who really digs into the matter, they have a metaphysical worldview, whereas those who are supposed to deal with the mind are materialists? I I know where you're going, and I Uh, agree. It's very strange. Yeah, well, that's that's where I was going. I have no answer for this, but um, it's a tragedy because if you're studying the mind and you have this preconceived notion of the mind not being real or autonomic, then then you have a problem. But uh, your book, back to that. Okay. Um, I'd say if if people get it, would you say that they get a good survey of the horizon research in different fields of science, like the groundbreaking, you know, cracking the materialist wall in the different fields? Probably. I can't really say that because that's not how the book was designed. It was more just kind of my personal take on what I experienced in trying to understand my awakening about how I I maybe should be a little bit more skeptical of the science that I thought was science. And in particular, about this question of consciousness, because Mm. I think someone who wants to really tackle the question of consciousness um, will have a big leg up on understanding a lot of these riddles that we're talking about in terms of how science has been corrupted, but also in terms of any kind of connection with what's more beyond who we are, dare I say, spiritual, all those things Mm. come to a head when you start studying consciousness. Yeah, I agree with that. But it does seem like you're taking on every field where there is some research into... I mean, you have uh, mediumism and psychism, telepathy, healing and medicine, something you call psychic detectives. Um, Near-death experience is a big thing also in your podcasts. Even evolution you're you're taking on here. And and the two last chapters is called The End of Science as We Know It. and science over the tipping point. It sounds kind of like you're ending with a hope here. (laughs) 
Well, I, I think I think maybe there is uh, hope in the way that that you know we've discussed it thus far. What science, as we know it, is selling us, we all know is bullshit. We just know it's bullshit. What most of us have done is kind of a, a modified shut up and calculate and get on with our lives kind of thing. So mm. it's in the same way that most people, and I think this is more true, it's also true in America. People misunderstand uh, Christianity in America. You know, most Americans who are Christian are just like, yada, yada, I don't really believe in all that stuff, but I believe in community. I believe mm. in good. I believe in something more than I am. So if this is a way to kind of get me a little bit closer to that, fine. I don't really care about the Jesus story or anything like that. I'm just kind of a nominal Christian. Well, mm. I think there's something similar going on with science. You know, people hear this atheistic, scientific, materialistic bullshit. You're a biological robot. Your life is meaningless. The universe is meaningless. And they just kind of nod their head and go, Yada, yada. That's what, that's what these guys in the white coats say. I don't really believe that. And then they get on with their life. I think that's the hope for us is that so, – now, the problem for that is science is losing its credibility. It's losing its pull. But the yeah. hope for that is that as, it, as they further dig in and double down on this silliness, more and more people just kind of nod their head and look the other way. Yeah, but but uh, I actually disagree because like Bauer made a point of uh, in your discussion with him, that was more the attitude the masses had in the old days. But what we see now is that as people become more secular and religious is losing their grip, they just replace it with this magical imagination called science, as if that's one big uniform field where everybody agrees about everything. And it starts to influence areas where it shouldn't influence and where it didn't influence that much in the past. Okay, yeah. Where the narrative they present that we have to accept as fact is precisely not anything to do with science, but to do with this metaphysical, faith-based notion of materialism. And and you've done a brilliant job in many of your shows showing that it's metaphysical, actually, and they don't even understand that. <laughs> and that's when it becomes dangerous, and that's probably also because why there's a backlash, because now they try to use science as an alibi of keeping us down in the mental prison when... It really shouldn't have anything to do with the science. If people just regarded, maybe it's more different here in Norway where we are very secular and where religion doesn't dictate the, the uh, agenda of the day anymore. But okay. this false understanding of science does. And I see that the more fundamentalistic people are defending this, their notion of science, the less understanding they actually have of science. Mm. They have this uh, commercial understanding, this advertisement understanding of someone with glasses and a white lab coat and everything is to find a truth. But in actual fact, uh, it boils down to people, knowledge, filtration, bias, money, all that stuff we've been discussing. You see what I mean? Yes, I do. Oh, I totally see what you mean. And I, I think it's different. I think the cultural differences are, are interesting too. I always look at Europe and especially the Nordic countries. And I kind of like, wow, you know, it's kind of like when we were talking early on about Darren Brown, it's like good idea, bad execution kind of thing. You know, it's like, <laughs> yeah. I see where you're going, but you kind of missed the main point because in the larger debate about 
Okay, there's only really two scientific questions. Who are we? Why are we here? Everything is really about that. Then you got to say the religious people, as wrong as they are, are more right than the quote-unquote secular people or the atheists. It's mm. a hard pill to swallow, but they're at least in the ballpark of being right because they've concluded there's more, there's something else. And the secular atheists have concluded there isn't more, there isn't anything mm. else. It's just the matter. So we can pick on either side, but if you're really going to be a fair referee, you'd have to say the religious are at least in the ball game. Yeah, yeah, I see what you mean. Plus, they have a heart in their paradigm. No matter how screwed up it is, there is baked into it some kind of moral, ethical it's right. notion, which if we're robots, there's not. You can you can use that. Yeah, you can use that paradigm as an excuse for the most gruesome things. You know, I I, I love. Uh, I ran across this quote from uh, French philosopher, non-philosopher, Albert Camus. And uh, <clears throat> he said, there's only one philosophical question, suicide. <laughs> yeah. And what he A meant, real scientist would suicide to find out if it's... <laughs> well, well, and, and I'm not, I'm not, I'm certainly not advocating suicide as if I have to say something as stupid as, as, as a disclaimer like that. But think it through. Think it all the way through. If you really believe that you're a biological robot, if you really believe that the universe is meaningless, what is the point? Now, even if you say, well, the point is to enjoy life. Well, that's really kind of pointless. There is no real enjoyment. It's just a fantasy. It's an illusion. There's nothing real to it. Well, I just feel good while I'm doing it. No, you don't. That feeling, it's, it's all an illusion. And any reasonable, rational person would say, I don't want to be caught in some illusion. I don't want to ride that roller coaster. I choose to get off. So the real point, I think, is not that people should commit suicide, is that, but that people should be honest about right. saying that we all realize in our heart of hearts at three o'clock in the morning when we wake up, that there is something more. There is something. We are something that more. That drives us towards doing good rather than doing evil. There is a moral imperative. And mm. as much as we don't want to believe it or as much as we want to put on this armor suit of how tough we are, we realize in our heart of hearts that we are more. And that's why we march on. That's why we try and mm. figure out how to be a better person. Mm. No, yeah, that's, uh, yeah, that's, I guess, inbaked in us as human beings, this instinctive notion that, that we are more than uh, what we've been told. I, I guess that's as true today as it was uh, back in the medieval times when they also tried to reduce uh, mm -hmm. the human condition. Um, and it seems to me that the more organized and powerful a paradigm gets, the more it tries to limit people than really free them. Uh, so um, I guess what we need today is a liberation philosophy that can take over. Well, what would you, how would you envision that working out? You mean what the philosophy or how to, to make it take over? Yeah. It's an organic thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I, I point to the internet. I point to open source 
free exchange of ideas, free discourse. People have to go behind the labels, realizing where the real common interest lies. We can have allies, even among religious people, even among atheists, if they are sincere and honest. We have to we have to go past these layers of truth. These um, I don't blame someone for only realizing the obvious, right. but I, I do blame someone who only realizes the obvious and tries to force everyone else by dirty means to do that. The means never justify uh, the goal. The mean and the goal, as Gandhi said, is one. Well, this is I think at the this to me is the essence of the evil question which you touched on and which I've been very interested in lately. And, you know, I noticed in your excellent catalog of interviews, you did an interview with a guy who um, was an expert biographer on uh, Aleister Crowley. Mm. And I think, uh, I think Crowley is an interesting figure because Crowley to me represents how, how wrong things go among people who jump over to the other side and say, okay, yeah, the secular thing is out, the atheist thing is out. Now let me explore what my meaning might be from this occult esoteric thing. And then they're drawn into this kind of Luciferian, do what thou wilt, uh, Aleister Crowley uh, kind of mentality, which I think is indefensible in the larger scheme of things, when you really look at all this science that we're talking about, and you Mm. take this science to the next level and say, what is the meaning behind all this? Where is it really pointing us? And where it's pointing us, I think, is this idea that as uncomfortable as it is for folks, there is a moral imperative. There does seem to be good and evil there does seem to, and, and I don't mean it, I'm not a religious person, if you haven't figured this out by now. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you go on Skeptico, I got 50 shows just trashing Christians about their wacky beliefs. I think it is wacky, and I think mm-hmm. it's orchestrated to deceive people and all that. Yeah. But if you look at, for example, the near-death experience research, the science of it, the Pin Von Lommel, the Sam Parnia, the Jeff Long, and what all the best researchers are saying— once you get past the, gee, the heart stopped and the person had an out-of-body experience, you next have to deal with the fact that they met some spirit beings and the spirit beings told them it's all about love and mm. that when you do good things, I was there. And when you slipped up and you didn't do so good things, I was still there, but I was trying to guide you towards the good things. I don't know, Al, that is undeniable. People don't like to talk about that. They're uncomfortable with it. I get it. But shit, I don't know how you get past that data. It's baked into that science. Mm -hmm. If you go in and look at the after-death communication research, I interviewed Julie, Dr. Julie Beischel. You can go listen to the interview on my website. It's one of the most popular ones that I've done. She's extremely rigorous in her research in testing these mediums, controlled every which way you can imagine to avoid the cold reading and all that other bullshit that people say happens. Mm. Hey, it's not there. People are getting communication with deceased spirits. Lo and behold, they're telling us the same freaking thing that the near-death experiencers are saying. So we we can dance around this because uh, because if you want to put the title of secular on yourself and say, you know, oh, then this is my belief system, you know, whatever. That's not where the data leads. The data leads in this other direction towards love, 
towards connection, towards a, a, a real morality that is real, not just imagined. Yeah, but that's an interpretation question, isn't it? Where it leads, or would you say it's obvious, it's objective? I don't know how it, I don't see it as an interpretation question. Okay. I see it as, again, people can go check out the interview that I did with uh, Jeff Long. Jeff Long's not a religious guy, not a Christian, didn't come mm. at it from a Christian perspective. He's a He's an end-of-life radiation oncologist in outside of New Orleans, Louisiana. You know, that's who he mm. is. And he's compiled this database of 2,000 near-death experiences, and he's analyzed it medically. This is his conclusion, that this is mm. what happens after we die, where he's gone that few other people in the near-death experience community are willing to go, is they all want to stop by saying, okay, we now have reason to believe that consciousness survives bodily death. True. That's true. Mm. But what they're doing is that they're then stopping right there, <laughs> and they want to ignore the rest of the evidence. But can they take it further? Can science really? Do we have the tools? You have to. You have to. Mm. You are forced to. Because this is back to the title of the book, Why Science. Yeah, but isn't, I mean, isn't that the philosopher's prerogative to take over from there? I don't think uh, science have the tools to take it further. But, but we do. We do have the tools. We do. Okay. It, okay. As, it, and I think that's a very important point. That's a very important point because I yeah. kind of just blew by it earlier. Mm -hmm. This idea of medical survey, this idea of medically, scientifically understanding experience is not controversial. If I'm doing pain research, right? I'm in a hospital, mm -hmm. I'm doing pain research. I right. give you ibuprofen and I say, ah, do you feel better? I give you Oxycontin. I say, is the pain gone? That's a subjective experience. Oh. I could ask you all these questions about what the experience was like. How did you feel the medicine moving through your body? How long did it take you to, to feel it? What did it feel like after you, after an hour, after two hours? These are all questions about your experience. And then I could put some trick questions in there. Like if I was a good scientist, I would do, I would ask the same question a different way, two or three different times and see if you consistently answered the same way. There's other techniques, well-worn mm. techniques that scientists would do. But at the end of the day, I'd have a bunch of data. If I went out and asked a thousand people about that, I would have some good data. This is what, the, this is fundamental to science. This mm. is fundamental to science, this medical survey technique, right? Mm. So when you do that, with near-death experience, you can't just then say, well, I can't go there. That's uh, uh, because that's the same tool that you would use to evaluate anyone's experience about anything, mm. about pain, about depression, about all that stuff is purely a, a subjective experience. Mm. Yeah, no, I, I get you. And, and, and combined with the uh, stuff like you've pointed out that there is no brain activity measured, but they still have consciousness experience. The same actually goes for yogis, advanced yogis who, who report huge uh, experiences in, in, I guess we could call it nirvana in, in a metaphysical field, but their brain activity is, is uh, at a point where you shouldn't have any conscious experience. Well, let me just interject something, because I know from sure. experience, Al, you're going to get a ton of pushback on that. 
Okay. You're going to get yeah. people emailing you and saying, no, no, there's this new study that shows that even after you're dead, there's brain activity and all the rest. Yeah, of that. they would probably comment on the YouTube video. Yeah. And, mm. and th the short answer is that what we know is that what we know from 60 years of looking at the brain, like EEG work on humans and on animals, it all consistently tells us that we have no explanation for how coherent conscious thought of the kind that near-death experiencers report could be happening in this kind of severely compromised brain. So hmm. the modern debunking, which is really just science, has picked away at saying, look, we studied these rats and there was this little burst of brain activity 10 seconds after. Or there's this new study just the other day that said, hey, we've seen this little bit of brain activity deep in the brain 10 seconds after. Fine. Mm. I'm not against all that research. Bring it on. Mm. But it is completely at odds. If you want to say that that little blip there is somehow responsible for this larger experience that's being reported. The only way you can get there is to throw out 60 years of neuroscience and completely, because completely contradicts everything we know about how memory is formed, about how conscious thought has formed, all of that. So it's just mm -hmm. a typical apologist kind of crazy cognitive dissonance thing where people claim one crazier idea to overthrow another idea that they think is crazy. So they kind of propose something even, you know, even stranger. Mm. Like, yeah. I don't, I don't believe in precognition. So I think there's super psi. I think everyone could be uh -huh. aware of everything that's always happened in the universe before and after, you know, it's like, uh, where are you going with that? That doesn't, uh, Super sad. It's all in our genes, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. No, I see the point, and um, that's that's also why they don't realize that they bring their own metaphysics to the table. Right. But it's a secular metaphysics. <laughs> a point you've been making. That's right. I, I would agree. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. So let's wrap this up. Okay. By the way, I can't see. I mean, if people get your book, they'll they'll get a pretty good update on many fields of science why they're wrong or why the materialism is wrong. But I can't see that you've been touching reincarnation in the book. Maybe you do, but uh, there is one reincarnation researcher. I don't know if you've had him on. Uh, Ten years of uh, podcasting, you probably have had. Many of his colleagues, at least, but it's an Icelandic guy. It's the father of a friend of mine, actually. Sure. Harrelson, isn't his name? Uh, exactly. Yeah, yeah. You've had him on? Yes. And, uh, wow. Uh, yeah. Cool. And he's excellent. I think I yeah. didn't actually interview him myself on that one, but one of my partners at Skeptico did. Oh, yeah. Okay. So it's not just you who do the Skeptical shows. Well, 99% of them are. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So it was early on or something? No, it was it was uh, fairly recent, and I'm I think he's uh, he's excellent. He's got some great stuff, and he's featured in a new book from this woman I just interviewed, uh, uh, Leslie Kane. If anyone's familiar with her work with the New York Times bestseller UFO book, she's just done a book on survival, and and she has uh, she has some of his cases in there. So no, he's a mm. he's a very important guy. I think. Yeah, I want to have him on in myself. Yeah, that'd be a good show. I'll listen to that one. 
Yeah. <laughs> well, um, by the way, 10 years of, of making these shows, is everything for free online? Anyone can get everything? Yes. That's excellent. Uh, do, do you accept? How do you finance this? Donations? No donations. So basically you're financing it out of your own pocket. Yes. Hmm. Yeah. Quite the idealist. <laughs> I think we already established you're the idealist. I'm the iconoclast. <laughs> yeah, but in practical terms, you're the one. <laughs> <laughs> I would uh, encourage any of my listeners who are not familiar with your shows to check it out. Uh, I'd say the biggest difference is that you go more in-depth. You limit yourself to this, which is a broad feeling itself. We, we are swallowing over far too much. But our series that this show is a part of is kind of what your entire skeptical show is about. Super. But the similarities, at least, is that we both freely explore undogmatically any, any matter that we think should be uh, explored. And we do agree about how we debunk the unscientific aspects of academia. So uh, you'll enjoy... Alex's show very much. You're such an, how you say it in English, eloquent, eloquent uh, debater. You, you actually take on many of these materialists and expose them. I don't know if that's deliberate, but it just happens because they have nothing to back up. <laughs> a very weak case. <laughs> yeah, right. So it's like sometimes it sounds like you're taking uh, candy from children, right? <laughs> but uh, you also have very interesting shows where you take on um, good scientists to explore these things. I haven't listened too much to these uh, bashing of the dogmas in religion but that's that's be my next uh, explorations of your show stand so how can they uh, where, where do they find you online well the the spelling of it is just a little bit off because it's kind of spelled with the greek k in there it's s-k-e-p-t-i-k-o so two mm. k's in there yeah yeah but not in a row so yeah yeah, yeah. so skeptico.com yes even though it's not commercial, it's still com. A better address would be skeptico.info. <laughs> yeah, well, I was back in the old com days. Yeah. Yeah, so that's it. Uh, are you at YouTube too? Yes, yes. I think it's just slash skeptico. It, yeah, it's easy to find, you know, Alex, and then you type in any of these topics. And Yeah, I'll see if I can find it and add you to, if I haven't done it yet, add you to our favorites in our channel. That's awesome. Yeah. And I'll, I'm definitely a fan, so I'm going to, you've turned me on to Forum Borealis and I'm into it. So, uh, cool. you know, I'm a fan. We'll have, a, a, we'll have some good dialogues uh, down the road too, I'm sure. Yeah, and at, at least this series, I think you will enjoy when we start getting more people on this topic that we're taking on now. So, um, excellent. There you have it, people. Look up uh, his shows. If you like uh, the forum, you definitely like Skeptico. All right, Al. So thanks a lot for your time and for the very interesting uh, discussion we've had today, Alex. It's been awesome, Al. I totally enjoyed it. Mm. We'll stay in touch. Absolutely. Anytime. Okay, great. Okay, great. Thank you for listening to Forum Borealis. To conclude a science-critical program, it is only fitting that we muse over a few relevant quotes. In Alex's words, 
I started this journey expecting genuine debate, a battle of ideas, a war over the evidence, but that's not what I found. I found a lot of frustrated researchers who were facing a well-organized, aggressive, skeptical community that's managed to change the rules of the game when it comes to how certain kinds of controversial science research is done. Nothing has such power to broaden the mind as the ability to investigate systematically and truly all that comes under thy observation in life, said Marcus Aurelius. It is not possible to discover the more remote and deeper parts of any science if you stand but upon the level of the same science and ascend not to a higher science. Half of science is putting forth the right questions. There is another great and powerful cause why the sciences have made but little progress, which is this. It is not possible to run a course aright when the goal itself has not been rightly placed, said Sir Francis Bacon. To raise new questions, new possibilities, to regard old problems from a new angle, requires creative imagination and marks real advance in science, said Albert Einstein. Anybody who has been seriously engaged in scientific work of any kind realizes that over the entrance to the gates of the temple of science are written the words, ye must have faith, said Max Planck. Science is a way of thinking much more than it is a body of knowledge. We live in a society exquisitely dependent on science and technology in which hardly anyone knows anything about science and technology, said Carl Sagan. Science may be described as the art of systematic oversimplification, said Karl Popper. The art and science of asking questions is the source of all knowledge said Thomas Berger. And that's it for today. Your sincere host and pal has been me, Al, and be seeing you. Number one.